Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the middle, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. How you doing this morning? Pretty good, pretty good. I always get a kick out of your drum beat. Oh, the drum beat. I'm gonna start doing the, the guitar. Okay. It's like, it's like, dude, what is he doing? What is he doing? Children um, of the 80s. Yeah, children of the 80s. It's just how we roll. Have you ever seen them do those um, rock out uh, competitions? Where oh, they the have air the, the air guitar competitions. Yeah, those yeah. things are awesome. They're just like guys like rocking out. Um, but how do you know they're actually, you know, like not actually. Like I mean, really rocking how out? How do you know that they're hitting the note? You can look at them. You can look at like them. Like the way that the, fin- like the, the fingers, fingerboard. Their face. Like when they're like, like grating their teeth and stuff like that. You're like, that guy's really hitting that note. Feeling it. He can feel it. I mean, yeah, I've seen that. It like comes like, off of him in waves and stuff like that. Yeah. I get, I mean, I've watched it a couple times, so I guess, but. But it's like with real guitar, you can see people's hands Fingers. actually moving on on the the fingerboard. Yeah. Right? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. Fingerboard? Something like that. Something yeah. Like that. Close enough. Fret? Fret? Fingerboard? I don't know what it's called. I don't know. I'm not a guitarist. Close enough. Right. I don't have that kind of musical talent. I don't yeah. know. But but you can see where, yeah, yeah. where they go up and down and, and move their fingers around. But with the air guitar, I mean, you're just wiggling your fingers. <laughs> well, the power of the air guitar is not the, power. the technique. It's more so, like, it's the power stance, it's the movement, it's the music in the background. Like how much they're feeling it? It's how much they're feeling it, how much they can impart that feeling in you. It's all that part. Okay, okay, yeah, it's yeah. It's a different yeah. technique and skill, yeah. It's, I didn't know that's how they judged it. That's how, that's how I judge it, right? Okay. <laughs> like, like you said, it's like it's not like their fingers are moving in any particular right, real way. You can say, okay, he hit that note that guy or nailed that. Oh, that sound was flat. Yeah, it's like, like that note was flat, that was high. When they can hit the power stance and, yeah. All right. Yeah. I got I to gotta go on YouTube tonight and look that up <laughs> and because I, I just have to, I just have to know how they judge. What's the criteria? <laughs> right. right. What, like, is it fa- like one you get, you know, five points for for facial making yeah. facial expressions. Another one for like body or hair swinging. I think that's how it works. The hair swing. You, know, you got to have all that. I got to have all suppose. that stuff. All of that. All and, of that. It worked stuff. for Eddie Vedder. Who's Eddie Vedder? That's um, Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. Okay. The name sounded familiar. Yes. I was never a big fan of Pearl Jam. Oh my God. Oh, Jamal. It was like, he's like the, music. one of the epitomes of early of nineties glam rock. Alt alt rock. Not glam alternative. rock. Alternative. No, glam rock was was eighties with the where the men. Like meatloaf. Yeah. Or, um, was like, Guns and Roses. Guns, Guns and Roses. Like yeah. uh, there's uh, there's more like Def Leppard. Yeah. The guys with the big Aquanet hair yeah. and the. Like you know, like they, they, yeah. there's a, a touch of androgyny. Yeah, right, 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 with right. With the eyeliner, yeah. and sometimes lipsticks. Rockstar, the movie. I don't know if I've seen that. Which oh, Rockstar? Mark Wahlberg. That's the only oh. movie Wahlberg was in where he actually did a really good job. Um, beyond that point, yeah, Mark Wahlberg is a Mark- horrible actor. CC Music Factory, Marky Mark. I, yeah, oh, well, he hates it when you say that. Like he's Marky, Marky Mark. Mark. Yeah, he's Marky Mark. He hates that. At least to our age group, he's Marky he Mark. He hates that. He does not like to be reminded that he was Mark, part of CC Music Factory. Mark Wahlberg. Hey, That's I he remember him in his Calvin Klein underwear commercials. Do you? Or ads, I should say. Magazine ads. All the time. How long ago was that? That was like in the 90s. And you kept that memory. 
It's a good memory. <laughs> I gotta say, it's a good memory. <laughs> he was still Marky Mark, sans the funky bunch. Yes, yes. But I mean, he had the abs, and you know, and I was in, I was in high school. And then he made Transformer, and uh, oh my god! I don't know at what point. Can't believe how bad that movie is. But he's a he's a talented dude. You hating on the Wahlbergs? I am not hating on him. I'm just saying he's a bad actor. I don't think... I mean, <laughs> he's enjoyable. He's enjoyable. I think he's decent. Yeah. I liked... What's that, that bear movie, Ted? Yes. Ted, Ted was supposed to be funny. That yeah. was funny. Ted Did was you funny. see it? Bits and pieces. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty Ted funny. Ted was funny. It's a funny concept. Rockstar love, though. I, I don't think I've seen it. I know which one you're talking about, yeah. but I think I need to revisit that. Because he's basically mimicking a rock star. Like, he's... um. Like starting off as a fan, then go from a fan to getting into the band. He could hit these oh. extremely high notes and everything else. He could hold that stuff for real for long. That's the premise. I didn't. That's know the that. premise. I didn't know. And eventually, he comes to this kind of awakening where it's like, all right, I have spent all of my life trying to be this guy. I live to be that guy. Hate that lifestyle, and ends up doing his own thing, writing his own music and everything else. They use Irv Pipe for his character, and it's exceedingly good. Yeah. I like. I like the verb. Yeah, I remember good. them. Yeah, but let's get to headlines. Yes. Oh, Actually, I don't. You will, I don't oh, have. I will pull. I will read the because headlines. Because I am still in this getting together limbo. stage. No, this Google Drive hates me. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, why you handle and resolve the Google Drive? I think it's user error for like twenty minutes. I think it's hey. user error. I think it's user error. But while you while you handle that, <laughs> while you handle that. Let's go to the headlines. In the news, the Twitter board members who accepted Elon Musk's purchase of the social media platform on Monday gave tens of thousands of campaign contributions to, wait for it, mostly Democratic candidates. Who knew? According to OpenSecrets.org, the New York Post, some of the 11-member Twitter board donated a significant amount of money to Democratic candidates during the 2020 election cycle. I'm sure that had nothing to do <laughs> with them getting rid of the Hunter Biden story at all. Nothing to do with it at all. Complete coincidence. Only 41% of Americans, 18 to 29, approve of Joe Biden's performance as president. A new survey revealed on Monday. According to the polling from Harvard Institute of Politics, President Joe Biden's approval rating has dropped nearly 20% in just one year. Amid skyrocketing living costs, near record gas prices, which pro-Democrat media outlets have unsuccessfully attempted to pin on Russia. Disgraced ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has asked the state court of appeals to overturn his conviction for the 2020 murder, grisly murder, of George Floyd, according to the appeal that was filed on Monday. In international news, the Russian Federation has halted its gas supply to Bulgaria and Poland after two NATO nations refused to pay in rubles. They refused to pay in rubles. This move by the Russian authorities was aimed, was immediately slammed as blackmail by Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov. This step by the Kremlin comes amid increased tensions over European countries joining the U.S. and ramping up armed deliveries to Ukraine. Oh, it's blackmail. It's blackmail. That's like me saying, I'm going to go into a store and I'm going to steal something. And when you chase after me and threaten me with the cops, it's blackmail. Look, you guys decided to steal Russian money. Let's be clear what that is. And you decided to prevent them from basically using euros, dollars, all that stuff. Fair enough. Fair enough. Just be aware that there's consequences. And one of those consequences is they're not going to give you something for free. Hey, we need this very important, valuable thing. 
and we will give you air for it. Yeah, they're not going to do that. And so at the point where you decide stupidly, stupidly follow the U.S. president over this hill, down this cliff, that's on you. And of course, Russia is going to take certain action in regards to um, to you basically trying to steal their currency. I would steal their reserves. I, I would break it down to, to even simpler terms than that. And maybe I'm oversimplifying, but there are some stores you go to and it says no Amex. Yes. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. That, That's right. It Just because you have an Amex card and Amex card is widely American Express, Don't widely, mean we use it. widely accepted, it doesn't mean that particular store will accept Amex. Exactly. That simple. It's that simple. I love that. That's a great example. It's like, hey, you got your euros. But again, you told us that your euros don't have any value for us. So we don't accept euros. We don't accept dollars. Right. We accept rubles. That's what we accept. Right. Gaz- Gazprom put up a sign that says no euros. Rubles only. Oh, or right. the other or those cash yeah. only, yeah. cash only restaurants or whatever. That's what it is. That's all it is. ATM machine is down. Like, oh, sorry. Cash only. Cash only. It's on you, bro. It's on you. You guys decided to do this. I mean, you it followed Joe Biden off of a cliff. Like, it is some, what it is. At some all point, you gotta say. they really need to, like back with the Iraq war, you would have thought that Europe would have taken the hint during the Syrian conflict where all of those people basically flooded into Europe and destabilized the politics. You would have think they got took the hint. And now you have this situation where- a hint. Like, Yeah, they had, I mean, something, right? And now you have the situation where Biden is like, Let's just stab ourselves in the genitals with this knife. Let's just do that because we need to fight Putin. And they're like, okay, let's do that. Take one for the team. Let's just take one for the team. Now, missing the fact that what Europe got 40% of its oil reserves or something like that, where the U.S. is an oil producer. Yeah, sure. It's just not, I feel like it wasn't very well thought out. It was no. more more spite yes. than, than thought. Just pure ideology without any constituent physical matter reality situation that could support that ideological belief set. And end of the day, that store doesn't take euros. <laughs> right, right, right. We, no cash, no euros. Rubles. That's rubles. If the Biden administration goes ahead with arms sales to Ukraine amid the ongoing Russian special military operation in the country, the U.S. weapon stocks, stockpiles, may run out in several months. Some senators and experts have warned. Speaking at Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on Tuesday, Ellen Lord, former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, called the situation, quote, a huge threat, unquote, to national security, according to news agency Bloomberg. Lord added that the United States has already sent nearly a quarter of its stockpile of Stinger anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine. And we don't even know what is happening or where those things are going. And look, by the way, for all of these people saying, oh, Russia's losing this. And, and I mean, they said it the other day. If that's true, why are they destroying all of these weapons? Or why are Russian soldiers playing around with your guns? Like these guys are like <laughs> holding weapons and whatnot. Oh, look at what we got from America. We're taking this home. This Thank is going to be on our trophy. Yeah, it's like, hey, thanks, bro, for the weapons. I mean, let's be very clear. The amount of weapons that are being destroyed by Ukraine, even by Western sources, are extreme. And so, look, from one side of it, one group has taken Moorpaw. They've created their land bridge. They're surrounding the um, the Donbass region. They seem to be accomplishing the objectives. The other side is running out of weapons. The other side is running out of weapons. That's astonishing. Let's keep going. Israeli warplanes carried out a new attack near the Syrian capital last night, killing and wounding a number of soldiers in the process. According to the Syrian media, state media, 
The Syrian air defenses intercepted several missiles over Damascus before some of the projectiles hit their target in the capital city's countryside. In Earth and Science News, members of NASA's international research team found in meteorite samples two missing nucleotides that are part of DNA and RNA, proving that all five nitrogenous-based nitrogenous bases of the key molecules of life could be transported by asteroids. NASA reported on Tuesday. I already knew this. The discovered nucleotides were cytosine thiamine used in the formation of DNA and RNA chains. According to the report, the other three components were found in space objects earlier, and the difficulty in finding the rest was caused by the fragile and delicate structures of these elements and the methods of analysis used by researchers. In previous experiments, scientists dissolved fallen meteorites in hot formic acid and analyzed the resulting liquid. The report states, that is amazing news, because what it means is that life on Earth may not have originated from Earth itself. Right. That you might have had the situation where from elsewhere, those things hit the planet, and over the course of eons, a little creature comes out of it somehow, emerged. I mean, it's, it's amoeba somewhere. Yeah, it's astonishing when you think of it. Think of all the complexity of a life. Think of all the things just for the structure of an eye or a leg or any of those things. And for that to come into not just forming matter in the sense of a larger system full of smaller systems, but even this kind of um, intellect, this notion of inorganic matter or inorganic material forming the development of understanding its universe and its world. That is profound. And it's, you know, it's understand why people invoke God when they're thinking about stuff like that. Because it seems so monstrously complex that it just seems like it wouldn't happen on its own. Can you imagine how hard it is to go through a, either a gigantic asteroid or even even a, you know an asteroid the size of your fist yeah. to comb through it to find that little, DNA, little yeah. microscopic yeah. micro microscopic little piece of DNA and RNA and I mean how, and that's what they said. How do you, how do you even said, find it? They dropped it in the formic acid. And they even made the point of saying the difficulty in the results was because of the methods they were using to find stuff. Like, to your point, there's such delicate molecules that the process they were using Without to look for it was basically it. destroying it. Right. Yeah. right. Like, how do you not, how do you keep it, if you don't know what something, if, if there is any element on this little rock? Yeah. How do you not lose it? Basically. How do you, how do you know what you're doing isn't gonna destroy, destroy it? it? Yeah. Well, they were able to they find it. Yeah. Good on them. So listen to this. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan. All right, we have our guests, so let's do this. Let's take a break. We're gonna come back. You're not gonna want to miss this. This is gonna be a great conversation. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio, video, and smash that rumble. Um, also, if you want to reach us by phone, you could do so, 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. I want to get into this conversation that is taking place around the Solomon Islands because I am astonished by the naked hypocrisy associated with this. I'll just read this. 
I mean, for the longest time, I've been told Ukraine is an independent nation. It can do whatever it wants. If it wants to point weapons at Russia, it can do that. We shouldn't get involved. Now, when this was Cuba, that clearly wasn't the case. We were willing to end the world over it. But now this is Ukraine and the U.S. is in this kind of geopolitical headspace. And so, of course, amnesia. In this case, naked hypocrisy around the Solomon Islands. One of the most senior U.S. officials in the Pacific has refused to rule out military action against the Solomon Islands if it were to allow China to establish a military base there, saying the security deal between the countries presented, quote, potential regional security implications, unquote, for the U.S. and allies. It is important to note that China has said this is not about a military base. And if I'm not mistaken, the Solomon Islands has also said this is not about a military base. So this is basically provocation for the sake of provocation. And it's naked hypocrisy on top of it. But to have a conversation about this and other issues, we're joined with James Bradley. James Bradley is an American author from Antigo, Wisconsin, specializing in historical nonfiction chronicling the Pacific theater of World War II. James. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. How are you? So far, so good. Better that you are with us. And you have a book called China, uh, The China Mirage, a look into U.S.-China relations. I just wanted to put that out there before going into the interview. You seem to be the perfect person to talk to about this. And so I kind of want to get your take on this. Well, I mean, the level of hypocrisy associated with this is rather astonishing. Why are they putting so much emphasis on the Solomon Islands in the situation? China doesn't have a huge number of military bases outside of its country. And the U.S. is, what, 800? Um, an ungodly number of military bases. Why this much emphasis and focus on the Solomon Islands from the standpoint of the United States, Australia, or Western nation? Uh, because the Pacific is an American lake. And it's thought to be that since World War II. After World War II, General MacArthur said, we have an arc protecting us, Japan, uh, Taiwan, to the Philippines. And if you imagine that arc going all the way, it's containing China. So it's part of the containment strategy. And the Pacific has been thought of as an American lake, um, yeah, for a long time. It's just old-time thinking that continues. Are you concerned that this is going to be used as some kind of provocation? I mean, like, it, it just seems so, well, like I said, naked hypocrisy, to put it mildly. I mean, from China's standpoint, or for that matter, for the Solomon Allen standpoint, why do they decide that they wanted to have a security agreement with China? Meaning, what was their, what was the impetus for that? Uh, neighbors and friends and money. That, uh, I, I mean, pick a time, let's say 1970. China did, uh, wasn't a rich neighbor, and China, you know, didn't have the capability to expand uh, to the Solomon Islands. But you know, since that time, look at, let's say you're in Washington, right? And you you've had, uh, let's say the, the, you know, it's another time, and the Spanish Navy has been sailing up and down the coast of America and poking into Washington and. And uh, thinking that that's their lake. Well, as America industrializes, let's say in the 19th century, they want to push the Spanish Navy out a little and maybe uh, make friends with Bermuda, maybe make friends with Bahamas to push the Spanish Navy away. So if you're an American, just think if the uh, Chinese military was in the uh, Caribbean and on the coast of San Francisco and near New York Bay. That's how the Chinese view the American Navy. It's been surrounding and poking China 
for many years. And China wants a little buffer, just like Russia wants a buffer. Ukraine means that there's guns on your porch. What would you do if there's a bunch of guys on the porch of your house with guns? You need to push them away. And the same with China. A rising power is getting tired of, of, of the U.S. Navy so close. China has no intention to invade California, you know, but they just want a little elbow room. They don't want uh, D, uh, they don't want, uh, uh, um, you know, what are they? The labs in the Ukraine? The bio What do you labs. call them? The, uh, the, the what? The bio labs. China doesn't want bio labs surrounding it like uh, Russia doesn't want uh, bio labs in Ukraine surrounding it. We, you know, just just think of the of the Russian army in Canada and and the Chinese navy docking in Mexico. We would do something about it. John F. Kennedy could not stand those missiles in Cuba, and China and Russia don't want the American military all over the place. Look at American cities. Look at the New York subway system. What's your homeless situation in Washington? I mean. We've got a thousand bases ringing the globe. Let's bring them home and take care of America. You know, the infrastructure in Moscow and Beijing is absolutely fantastic. Take a walk in downtown Moscow, downtown Beijing. Take a walk in downtown New York and Washington. I mean, you know, it's time for us to spend a little more money on the folks at home and not worry about what's happening 6,000 miles away. Now, James, I got to ask, do you believe that the the very cavalier American attitude, or perhaps as, as it would appear to be, at least through the DOD, and having our bases all over the world, that that cavalier attitude from the 20th century can no longer be applicable in the 21st century because the... I would say largely the BRICS nations, which Russia and China were members or are members of, that those kids on the block have finally grown up. You can't push those kids around anymore in the 21st century. They've grown up, they've caught up, and they can push back. Yeah, you know, it's, I I mean, cavalier attitude. I don't want to say that, you know, yesterday some Americans grew up with an attitude. I mean, it's the whole historical structure. We had a world, we had a world war, and it thrust Americans to Germany, and it thrust Americans out to Okinawa. You know what I mean? It, it was like a, a we exploded out of a cannon across the Atlantic into Europe and uh, to Asia, and those countries were defeated. And we had military there, and we left some tanks, metaphorically. And then we grew bases. You know, there's a long history of this. So there's a reason that we're out there, but it's an old reason, and time has changed. And Russia doesn't want to invade France and England and then gobble up Bermuda and New York. You know, China, historically, is not expansive. In World War II, what was the problem? Did China invade a country? No, Japan invaded China. And then, and then after China, Japan got pushed out, 
the American military fought on the wrong side of the Chinese Civil War. So, you know, Americans are so concerned about the South China Sea. We have to keep peace in the South China Sea. Well, what's the record in the South China Sea? The South China Sea is where John McCain took off from an aircraft carrier to bomb civilians in Hanoi. Three million dead Asians because we sent the U.S. Navy to the South China Sea. So I'm not, you know, trying to criticize anybody. I'm just saying it's time for America to uh, take care of San Francisco. It's time for America to take care of New York, Chicago, Washington. And, you know, let China take care of its area and Russia take care of its area. You, you cannot have biolabs and NATO missiles right in, you know, under the arm of Russia. And you can't do it to China. It's a, it, and the other thing about, a big thing about China, if you read my book, The China Mirage, I make the point that there's a misconception that the world started in 1945 and there was a poor country called China, and now, oh my God, China's rising. No, 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 no. You know, if we look at the 5,000-year history of the world, China was number one for most of, of, of history. If you go meet the Queen of England tomorrow, come on, let's go to Windsor Castle. There's Prince Charles. There's the Queen. Let's have tea. And then if they serve you tea, they're going to serve it on China. Well, that tea, the reason that that queen drinks tea is because China invented tea. And the reason they call that cup in the saucer China is because China could make porcelain for 1,000 years before England figured out how to do it. China was the high-tech nation of the world. Deep well mining. I mean, so many inventions, right? In Europe, in Paris, they were digging for garlic and potatoes. So if from the Chinese view, you know, we've always had a po large population and we've always been number one, but they're not expansive. The idea, you know, the, the constant drumbeat that China is going to, uh, you know, be marching down the street of, uh, of uh, Topeka, Kansas tomorrow, unless we spend billions of dollars on a Navy, it's not just not true. China it does, does not want to expand to California, but China does not want nuclear-tipped ships in, you know, under its arm. Yeah, it's radical insecurity from the standpoint of the U.S. And even those type of conversations when the U.S. has over a thousand military bases and they're like, how dare you get one extra base outside of your country? Yeah, it's a certain level of insecurity associated with it that is disconnected from reality. How does China view this kind of changing world order? Um, because, like you said, China wasn't, let's say, historically expansionistic in, in that sense. By the same token, I, let, let me give you my conception of it and you tell me whether I'm right or wrong on it. Um, in my conception, China tries for win-win relationships. I think the Belt and Road Initiative is a really good example of that. Basically, we're going to allow financial opportunity for your particular country, and we're going to be able to help out with that financial opportunity and benefit ourselves and expand a marketplace for our products. The point, again, win-win. Same thing was taking place in Bolivia with the lithium mines. Anywhere around the globe you go, it's usually cut into win-win. But the U.S. doesn't think of the world that way. We think of the world in zero-sum terms. And so 
it's not a situation where we're engaging China from the standpoint of, okay, we're going to try to find a way for this relationship. We don't think that way. It's existential. Our objective is to win, period. Whether that means using Ukrainians as cannon fodder in order to use it as a knife against Russia, or whether that means using Taiwan or Hong Kong. So how does China had to accommodate that adjustment um, from, I guess you could say, their typical ideology to basically having to can deal with real-world physical matter phenomena of an opponent that is not looking for those win-win relationships? Well, China is for China. So the emperor has to please the people or they get overthrown. There's the mandate of heaven. You know, I mean, uh, the emperor has to keep peace and have prosperity within the kingdom or the emperor gets overthrown. So people say communist China. It's, yeah, that's a name. It's not a communist country. It's an emperor system. And the emperor is there in Beijing like he's been there for thousands of years. And the Communist Party is 100 million people. Those are the mandarins, you know, the traditional emperor mandarin system. So they have their traditional system, and China is for China. But the problem is not that China is in San Francisco Bay. The problem is not that China is in the Caribbean. The problem is that there's a brand new power, America, that got thrust out in World War II to the Chinese area and thinks it still has a role there. It's time for America to be for America. Look at the American cities. Where are your high-speed trains? I'm on a train from Shanghai to Beijing, and they give me tea, and I'm going 200 miles an hour, and the tea's not jiggling. I look down at the tea. It's not jiggling. No, but I'm, I'm not criticizing America, but I flew home. And I had to give a speech in Boston, and I took the Amtrak from Boston to New York, and it derailed. And I'm out in the and I'm out in the field with some businessmen, and we're walking across the field to hitchhike on Highway 95. Look at the potholes. Uh, you know, I, I lived in New York for many years. I mean, driving to the airport is dodging potholes. You know, I went to Moscow, and I, I wrote an article: Where are the potholes in Moscow? So I'm not I'm not trying to defend Russia or China. What I'm saying is, how about America for America, for the American people? How many billions of dollars are we sending to Ukraine? We're not sending it to Ukraine. When we announce, you know, 13 billion dollars for Ukraine, first of all, where'd that come where'd that come from? We printed it up. It's funny money. It's Federal Reserve money. It's it's future debt. The United States government is broke. We don't have $13 billion. And then so we printed the money up. And where did it go? It went across the street to Lockheed or Raytheon. You know, the the defense secretary is a former general. Well, he's also a former member of the Raytheon board. He's a salesman for military equipment. Come on, America. Come on, America. How about $13 billion for the New York subway system? How about $13 billion for American infrastructure? You know, Ukraine is not our border. The Solomon Islands is not our, you know, I was out in Micronesia um, just before COVID. And it's unbelievable. You go out to Micronesia and you realize 
they're building a Maginot Line from Hawaii to the Philippines. What does that mean? The Maginot Line was the French defensive line uh, that the French built, uh, cost them a fortune, and the Germans jumped over it. But it was a defensive line. Well, we're spending billions and billions of dollars building, you know, defensive lines in the Pacific. You know, billions and billions of dollars for our Navy to thrust out in the Pacific. As I understand it, I'm not in America right now, but but the Long Beach port, we can't even get it to, we can't even get the ships in to offload them. Yeah, I, I grew up a few miles outside of Long Beach, and um, the ports of Long Beach are easily more, they're at least 50 years old and older, whereas the ports in China are about 10 years old. And the ones that are that are older have been retrofitted and changed to, you know, match uh, the sizes of these cargo ships that are coming through. Uh, James, I, I want to go back to something that you touched on about China not truly being a communist state anymore and how how the American foreign policy system is is really it stems from that era of thinking about uh, that part of Asia. Right. Because. If you go back to the Dwight D. Eisenhower doctrine um, of why the secret war happened in Laos, right, under four U.S. presidents, Eisenhower, uh, JFK, Nixon, the, I mean, people think that this, this posturing towards China only happened because they have since become a superpower in the world. But really, I would argue that it began in the 1950s under the Eisenhower doctrine that if Laos fell to communism, back then communist red China, if Laos fell to communism, then the whole of Asia would fall that way. And a lot of people don't actually know that, right? And, you know, it it, it began with that doctrine from Eisenhower. It became then Kennedy and then Johnson, obviously, because Kennedy passed away early, and Nixon. And Nixon was actually the one that was the first U.S. president to go to China, and we forget that. But they were, prior to that, they were operating on this, this Cold War mentality. And would you argue that, that the, the U.S. foreign policy system is still rooted when they look at Asia? They look at it with this Cold War lens, like this is communist China, communism is going to spread, we have to fight communism, so therefore we got we to gotta take the Solomon Islands too. Yeah, but I agree with you, but it goes back to World War II. Again, we, the military was thrust out there. We took Okinawa, we took uh, Taiwan, you know, we took the Philippines, and then there's another enemy. There's communist China. I don't, Americans are unaware that if you walk around Laos, there's one third of the country that's kind of roped off. You're going to have your leg blown off if you walk around one third of Laos because it's full of American bombs. That's right. So I went to a village in northern Laos. We walk in and there's a lady sitting on a porch and I said, you know anyone injured by American bombs? And she pulled down her uh, top a little bit and showed a nick in her breast where a bomb had gone off uh, three days before in the field. She said there's a wed- wedding around the corner, and I went, and there's about 40 people at this wedding. I said, anyone here injured by American bombs? And half the wedding lined up. 
for interviews. So, yeah, we've been uh, out there for a long time with this crazy idea of containing China. And it's the domino theory, what you, you were talking about. Eisenhower said in public speeches, you know, if you let Laos go or Vietnam go, uh, the dominoes are going to fall and we'll be fighting in San Francisco. John F. Kennedy was interviewed by Walter Cronkite. Mr. President, do you believe in the domino theory? Oh, yes, of course. If Vietnam falls, uh, China's going to take over all Asia, Indonesia, Australia. Well, <laughs> as soon as Vietnam kicked the Americans out, Vietnam went to war with China. The idea, I mean, do you have a second? How much more time do we have? Oh, you have time. Go for it. I love these history lessons. Yeah. So to talk, you know, just to illustrate, there there was a State Department employee in Vietnam, 1965. He was Harvard educated. And he's driving his Jeep at night and the Viet Cong stomp him. And, uh, you know, and they got a prisoner. Now they have to walk him about a week to a, a prison camp in the jungle. And they give a buffalo boy a rifle to walk this guy. So this guy's walking with this Buffalo boy, and he's a Harvard-educated, uh, uh, an American State Department employee. Are you with me? And he could speak some Vietnamese. So after about three days, the Vietnamese kid says, why are you here? Why are you in Vietnam? And the Harvard-educated American says, well, you know, if Vietnam falls, Vietnam's going to China's going to take over Vietnam, and uh, the whole thing's going to go to hell. And the Buffalo Boy starts laughing. China was uh, Vietnam's traditional enemy. The Chinese abhor the, the, the Vietnamese, abhor the Chinese. There's absolutely no way China was going to take over Vietnam. China, uh, Vietnam fought 2,000 years worth of war against China. But this Harvard guy says, unless I'm here, China's going to take, you know, even a Buffalo boy with no education knew it was silly. So we have these concepts, you know, Russia's an aggressor and China's an aggressor. No, 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 no. Just get NATO out of Ukraine. Get NATO out of Finland. George Herbert Walker Bush and James Baker told Gorbachev, NATO only has 13 countries. We're not going to advance anymore. You have our solemn promise. Well, now what does NATO have? 30 countries? They are encroaching on Russia. It's very obvious. You know, we are doing military exercises in the Straits of Malacca. We put a Obama put a base in uh, Australia. We do military exercises in Thailand where uh, China's the enemy. You know, we have nuclear-tipped warships off the coast of China. So uh, who's the aggressor here? Who is in the Caribbean? What is America's problem? We got Russian ships, Rus the Russian armies up in Toronto, and the Chinese navies in the Caribbean? No, 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 no. Come on, America. Well, look at downtown San Francisco. There's feces in downtown San Francisco. Let's build America. Let China take care of China. China's not going to gobble up Vietnam or there'll be a thousand-year war against China. China doesn't want to build an empire. See, America has an empire. And so they, say, they, they, 
The thinking is, well, if we don't have this empire, China's going to want a worldwide empire. China, no, if you go to Beijing and talk to the leaders in China, they're like, wow, empire is really a mistake. We're Chinese. We watched the Romans screw up with the empire. We watched the Dutch screw up by building an empire. We watched the Spanish screw up. We watched the English screw up. Now we're watching the Americans screw up. Everybody who builds a worldwide empire, they go broke. Look at downtown New York. Look at downtown Washington. You know? James, would, would you mean, make... Empi- it sounds, empire, it- empire, doesn't, empire doesn't pay, and China knows it. So relax, America. <laughs> James, would I think some people listening would say that you are basically making the case for Donald Trump, that this is his MAGA theory, except that obviously he's probably not the best spokesperson for that ideology. But, you know... I think at the heart of the MAGA argument, it's that he wanted all of these things, you know, to put America first. And then uh, the the trope was run the other way by the Democrats to say, oh, this is racist that he's talking about going back to the 1950s where, you know, it's pre, uh, you know, equal rights and pre uh, black rights and pre. But isn't this basically the same argument that Donald Trump could have made better about MAGA? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not political. I'm a historian. I haven't lived in the United States since 2016. I don't know the Trump mania and all that stuff. (laughs) Let me go back. No, but let me go back. If America was not building an empire, maybe many more of my high school friends would have gone to college for free. I'm talking 1960s and 70s before anyone could say Trump. If America was not building an empire, Maybe the, we would have uh, high-speed trains going across the country. If America was not building an empire, maybe we'd have not building an empire. Maybe we'd have a lot less poverty. Maybe, maybe uh, medical care would not be the number one reason why Americans go bankrupt. If America was not building an empire, maybe we'd be number one in, uh, in math and science skills rather than number whatever we are, 1,800, you know? I'm not talking political like the world started yesterday. Empire has cost us a fortune over decades. China sees it. What I'm trying to say to America is, hey, come back, America. Build America. China's not going to build an empire because they watched thousands of years of countries shoot themselves in the foot. Go to England. That's like becoming a third world country. How did the empire serve England? You know, I mean, I'm not talking about recent mega history. It doesn't matter. I'm talking long term American thinking. We don't need the empire and nobody's going to invade San Francisco. James, on on your your you know strength of experience and knowledge on on the subject of World War II, the the Solomon Islands were under Japanese control at that time until the U.S. captured them in the war. But the the fear at that time was that the Japanese Imperial Army was inching closer to Australia. Now, the Solomon Islands are just uh, a little bit northeast of Australia. Does the U.S. fear that China could cut off the shipping routes to Australia by way of the Pacific, just owning uh, almost as if 
the area where, where Taiwan and the Straits are, where they kind of own that maritime uh, area, I should say. Well, yeah. Uh, see, for, I mean, does it fear? Of course it fears, because fear grows the military-industrial complex. So fear, fear, fear. Americans have to worry about Russia marching into New York. Fear, fear, fear. Let's build missiles. Fear, fear, fear. Let's build aircraft carriers. They're only $5 billion each. But America's got to realize, let's say we send an aircraft carrier out into the Pacific. Let's say there's 4,000 sailors on that aircraft carrier. Let's say they sit down to lunch, 4,000 hamburgers. Well, you know, American debt borrowed from China is paying for about 75%, about 60% of those hamburgers. We can't even afford, we have no money. You know what I mean? We, we can't afford this stuff. We're broke. It's ridiculous. So China makes an agreement with the Solomon Islands. So what? They're not going to cut off shipping to Japan and Australia. And it's just, it's ridiculous. You know, I mean, where's the history here? If you look at those waters, look, like I said, the South China Sea, uh, China never caused a problem there. America killed three million Asians there. So uh, let's, you know, let's take care of the Caribbean. And uh, Russia's not going to make a base on Bermuda. But we can't have a base in the Ukraine on the uh, on the border of Russia. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, I agreed on you that. You can't. Th and I mean, John Mersheimer, Professor John Mersheimer, he just says it plainly. He says Russia and China have a lot of power and you can't poke them anymore. But the result is not that San Francisco is going to be invaded. And that wash, you know, and that Washington D.C. is going to be surrounded by Russian troops. That's not their goal. My, uh, uh, Putin wants what is best for Russians, and Xi wants what is best for the Chinese. So we're, you know, when you say when you say Solomon Island, how far is that from Washington? You're in Washington. What? How? How far do you have to reach to get out there? Yeah, it's a, it's some ways. Yeah, it is very far away. It is not on that border. Like it's not on the border of tech, you know, Tennessee. Um, I want to go into Taiwan because you made a point about you can't poke them anymore. But it seems that we are. Meaning this idea of like, okay, these guys have gotten sufficiently strong or sufficiently powerful enough where these kind of, where this is no longer a unipolar world like it was back in 2000. This is a different time space. We don't seem to be acknowledging that. I mean, it, Ukraine is a great example of that. That this kind of the culmination of policy going back for 30, 40 years. Well, what about Taiwan? And the situation with Taiwan seems to be somewhat similar. Do you believe or is there a concern that Taiwan becomes a provocation or a flashpoint, just like Ukraine became a flashpoint for Russia? Okay, it is. But you, again, I'm a historian. So let's look at maps of about 300 years ago. And Ukraine is part of Russia. You know, the, the Russian uh, church came from uh, Kiev. This is, I mean, look at the maps, you know, the Donbass and the air, a lot of the areas where they're fighting, they speak Russian. So lines were drawn after World War II. And now we're saying these are uh, official unmovable lines. Well, they're not, if you're looking at it from the point of view uh, of Moscow. You know, there's a history here, okay? So Taiwan. Taiwan was always part of China. 
it, it, Taiwan was always part of China. What happened was that uh, after the, the Japanese took Taiwan. Well, yeah, Japanese occupied Taiwan, by the way, with American help in the beginning. Go back to Theodore Roosevelt. He supported the Japanese Monroe Doctrine. It was Theodore Roosevelt who encouraged the Japanese to go into Korea, and they later went into China. Oops, I guess that didn't make it into the history books. It was Theodore Roosevelt who encouraged the Japanese to go into Taiwan. Oops, I guess that didn't make it into the history books. So anyway, we beat uh, uh, Japan in World War II, and we have this island called Taiwan. Well, we support Chiang Kai-shek, the, the, the dictator loser in the uh, Chinese Civil War, and, and he, he's just a complete dictator, but we allow him to steal China's gold and then go to Taiwan, and oops, that's the new China. So honest to God, when I was a kid growing up in high school, I learned there's two Chinas. There's this China with 500 million people uh, on the continent. That's not China. That's red China. The real China is this little rock out in the uh, Pacific called Taiwan. Oh, that's the real China. We recognize, I mean, it's just ridiculous. So Taiwan's part of China. China's going to take over Taiwan. If America doesn't make a case of it, they're going to do it peacefully. And it's just, I'm sorry, it's historically Taiwan's part of China. Now, listen to me. I have a daughter who lives in Taipei. Repeat, I have a daughter who lives in Taipei. The fear-mongering in America is that they're going to drop bombs on my daughter. I asked my daughter what she thinks about China taking Taiwan. She says, I guess I'll have a different color uh, passport. That's as far as your daughter was looking into it. Yeah. But Taiwan is almost united with China right now business-wise. You know what I mean? But you can sell a hell of a lot of armaments if you if you keep up with this propaganda that Taiwan's a democracy fighting against China and we can't allow it to fall because guess what? There's that domino theory. First, it's going to be Taiwan and then Chinese troops marching up San Francisco. And, you know, no, China doesn't want to take Hawaii. China doesn't want to take Mexico. But Taiwan's part of China historically. They see it as a province. They don't see it as a takeover. Again, I'm not criticizing America. I'm not supporting China. I'm just talking about some facts. You cannot move big guys with guns to my porch. I, 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 I can't, I, you know, I can't tolerate it. A thousand percent agree. But from the standpoint of Taiwan, I mean, I understand that that's the way China sees it. But you made the point earlier in the conversation, the way that, for example, Australia, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, how these countries are basically being used as these proxy military installations in order to ring China with weapons. I mean, Hillary Clinton even made that same statement saying she wanted to ring China with missiles. And so it, and under that context, I mean, China does have to be aware and concerned that this is something that, at the very least, is in the ether of things, meaning they're perfectly aware that the same situation that is basically taking place in Ukraine right now could take place in Taiwan. I mean, look at all of the weapons and the relationship that Taiwan has with the United States. I mean, how do you frame that? 
I mean, because by your point, your daughter is making the case of, well, look, I just have a new passport. But the way Taiwan is looking at it is not necessarily as I have a new passport. It's we need more weapons in order to prevent this eventuality from coming to fruition. Can you talk about that for a bit? Okay, is it, okay, but is Taiwan looking at that, or is Washington saying uh, to some Taiwanese, "How would you like twenty uh, million dollars and a mansion in Los Angeles if you'll just make this speech about uh, how scared you are of China and how you need Raytheon to produce missiles? We got to make some sales here. I mean, this is the military-industrial complex. We need salesmen. Oh, there's a uh, uh, there's the defense secretary. Geez, a general. His name is Austin. It's illegal to have generals on top of the military. We're su- supposed to be civilian run. But we'll give him a pass because he, he was on the board of directors of Raytheon, and he's such a good missile salesman. So we need talk out of, of Taiwan. You know, it's a circular thing. You know what I mean? This is not organic Taiwan pleading to America to save it. This is uh, some highly paid Taiwanese who say we need missiles. And, uh, you know, I mean, look at the look at the money flow. Ukraine is a money laundering uh, source for the Democratic Party. Wake up, folks. You know, Taiwan is just an absolute wonderful reason to sell military equipment. It's ridiculous. How long if if America forced a war over Taiwan? How long would that last? Here, I got a stopwatch. You know what I mean? <laughs> Every no, no, but in people don't realize that President Xi and President uh, Putin explained to Donald Trump in Da Nang, Vietnam, in 2017, that all his, all the American aircraft carriers would be sunk in the first 30 minutes of a world war. We're sending aircraft carriers out. One little missile, it's called the Du Dung or Dung Du or whatever, I can't remember. One little Chinese missile coming up into the belly of an aircraft carrier, and we have 4,000 casualties. See, look at Pearl Harbor, the pictures of Pearl Harbor. What ships were hit? They were warships. Well, five years later, there were no warships. They, they were aircraft carriers. We were fighting with old armaments. Those war, big old warships, you know, didn't work in World War II, right? Well, right now, the aircraft carriers that we're spending billions of dollars on, I'm so, what are you talking about? They're going to be gone in a second, and China's going to take Taiwan. We can't even operate the ports of Seattle uh, and Los Angeles and Long Beach efficiently. Let's wake up, America. You guys are in Washington. You're going to drive home tonight. Are you going to drive by any homeless? Oh, yeah. Ton. Well, um, I mean, I'm in New Zealand right now, but I was living in Saigon. There's no homeless in Saigon. You, you don't you walk around Saigon at, mid, at midnight. You don't see any tents and homeless. Come on, Amer- America. Why do we have one homeless person in the capital of the United States? You know, we got a thousand bases around the world. We're airlifting uh, basketball courts and Burger Kings out to the middle of nowhere. You, you know, we were spending unlimited money on on on, uh, on bases. How, how about you know? How about you? go ahead and and weaponry now, James? If you as we're running out of time, uh, if you recall, just a few months back, there was 
a, an, a U.S. fighter jet that crashed because it was short of, land, of the landing on the aircraft carrier out in the Asia Pacific. And we watched it sink. And there are images of that. And the U.S. immediately started putting out news that we have to hurry up and get this because it's in Chinese waters. And they're going to retrieve it first. And they're going to get all of our our military intelligence and, and equipment intelligence and learn, you know, learn all of our stuff. And the Chinese literally put out a release saying, no, we, we just want to know your dates and times of when you plan on doing this stuff because you're in our territorial waters. We don't plan on stealing your stuff. But meanwhile, the U.S. mainstream news is constantly telling us that the Chinese are ready to steal that downed fighter jet. What do you think about that positioning of, you know, in the news and, and what the Chinese are saying that, hey, we don't want your stuff. We have better stuff. We have 30 seconds, James. Well, if you and I, you know, are elected uh, president and vice president of the United States, we go into a meeting and you got to have enemies because you got to sell a lot of military equipment. So anything that happens, it's Russia, 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 and China, China, China. And Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama pivoted to Asia. Uh, but I appreciate it. You have the voice, James Bradley, American author from Antigua, Wisconsin, specializing in historical nonfiction. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Manila Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, I am the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. Right on. We have a guest coming up at 8.05, I believe. So, oh, that quick? Yeah, because the time frame Dan? and everything else, yeah. Are we doing, was this Dan next? Yes, I believe it's Dan and Yee Garoppa. Oh, sorry, Chris, Chris, yeah, Chris, Chris is coming up next. Yeah, yeah. Well, before so. we get to Chris, let me do this. Yeah. Uh, let me get to this breaking news. Uh, not sure what this means for U.S.-Russia relations, but there has been a prisoner exchange just moments ago between the U.S. and Russia. The U.S. has given back to Russia a name, a man by the name of Konstantin Yaroshenko, a Russian pilot doing 20 years in the federal pen, sentenced in Connecticut for conspiracy to smuggle cocaine into the U.S., Meanwhile, the Russians are handing back to the U.S. a young U.S. Marine called Trevor Reed, or excuse me, a former Marine from Texas who was arrested back in 2019 after Russian authorities said he assaulted a a police officer while being driven uh, to the police station following an altercation while he was out and about in Moscow. So, yeah, it sounds like he was drunk at a yeah, bar and belligerent, belligerent fight a cop. and then fought a cop. Um, so he got in trouble in 2019. He is coming back home to Texas. So there's there's a prisoner exchange there. So it sounds like for foreign policy, 
maybe, maybe that is opening the doors to peace talks. It's so random. But it I mean, just feels it starts, random. It's a good thing. It's I'm a not good thing. It's bad. Yeah. Right. And it, it is a good thing because before it was like everyone was icing each other out. Now there's a prisoner exchange. These aren't the biggest high profilist people, but but it's something. something. Yeah. It is something. So it means, you know, the doors are opening and you're at least peeking through like, maybe I want to talk to you. Maybe not. So that that's a good thing. Uh, all right. Let's get to let's start with some headlines here. Uh, Some more domestic news here. The Twitter board members who accepted Elon Musk's purchase of the social media platform on Monday gave tens of thousands of campaign contributions to who else? I'm sure you guessed it. Democratic candidates. According to OpenSecrets.org, the New York Post also says that some of the 11-member Twitter board donated significant amounts of money to Democratic candidates during the 2020 election cycle. So... You don't say. Now, only 41% of Americans aged 18 to 29 approve of Joe Biden's performance as president. A new survey has just revealed, according to that poll from the Harvard Institute of Politics, President Biden's approval ratings have dropped nearly 20% in just one year. Like you tanked your polls by 20% in one year. That's incredible. Uh, obviously because we have some skyrocketing cost of living here, uh, record gas prices everywhere you go, uh, which pro-Democrat media outlets have unsuccessfully attempted to pin on Russia because, you know, gas is expensive. Russia is a gas-producing country. Your gas prices are high. Therefore, blame Russia. Uh, Now, disgraced ex-Minneapolis PD Derek Chauvin, the guy convicted of... uh, Murder. I believe it was that charge, right? Murder? Yeah. Derek Chauvin has asked the State Court of Appeals to overturn his 2020 conviction of the murder of George Floyd, according to that appeal. Uh, It was just filed Monday. So, not sure. Maybe he thinks that the the dust has settled and he might, you know, get this case dropped. Uh, International news. The Russian Federation has halted its gas supplies to Bulgaria and Poland after the two NATO countries refused to pay in rubles. Now, this move by the Russian authorities was immediately slammed as they called it blackmail by Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov. This step by the Kremlin comes amid increased tensions over European countries joining the U.S. and ramping up arms deliveries into Ukraine. I'm just going to say that Every business has the right to say no to Amex or say no shoes, no shirt, no service. If they say no euros, we accept rubles only. That's the breaks. Sorry. Then, Stop right here because we have a guest yeah. with us. So those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. All right. So let's take a quick break. We're going to come back. We have our guests. It's a little bit early today, but his time frame wasn't going to work out. And we really wanted to have the conversation. We're going to be talking about Elon Musk and what does it mean going forward that Musk is taking the company of Twitter. Back in a moment. Fault Lines, Thomas Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to move to our next guest. We have Chris Garafa. He's the editor for techforthepeople.org and co-host of the Reboot Podcast. You can find him on Twitter at CMG. Chris, thank you for joining us. How are you doing this morning? Hey, great. Thanks so much for having me on and uh, working with my schedule, as you mentioned before. I appreciate it. No, no, I appreciate you joining us for our schedule. I mean, seven o'clock, no, seven a.m. and early is early in the morning. So I totally understand people's difficulty in trying to make this work. So no, I really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to go into Elon Musk taking or buying Twitter, and I know a lot of Democrats feel like he's taking Twitter, but he's buying Twitter. And I want to get to the very basic question of what does this mean going forward, and mechanically, what does this mean? Because people have been talking about what does it mean in the sense of free speech? What does it mean from the standpoint of um, whether or not who's going to be allowed back on Twitter? Is Trump coming back? Those are more, you know, this kind of esoteric part of it. But from the practical standpoint of it, what does this mean going forward? Well, let's let's keep two things in mind. First, this deal is going to take about six months to go forward. Elon Musk doesn't own a thing in Twitter yet. Uh, This deal has to be approved. It has to be vetted. There has to be, you know, financial and legal, uh, you know, procedures that have to be gone through. So within six months, I I would say there's a non-zero chance that this deal falls through. Just knowing how Elon Musk has acted in the past around matters of business and frankly, flashing his money around. Um, He's been in trouble with the SEC uh, over, you know, the other, you know, securities type, you know, violations. At one point, he had to have a lawyer approving his tweets. I mean, you know, it was at that point because he was (laughs) he was violating, you know, SEC policy and regulation that much. Um, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is I I think a lot of people, especially, you know, folks, maybe progressives or liberals are acting like this is a hostile takeover, um, you know, of like some pristine, you know, dreamland. (laughs) But remember, first of all, I mean, this is, you know, the the Twitter board has to agree to this. They, They said, hey, we're pretty okay with this idea. Let's look into it more. Like they want this. Um, they would not have, you know, they, we would not be having this conversation if the Twitter board just said, no, we're not interested in your money, Mr. Musk. Please continue to go on and go back to space or something. So, you know, this is, I mean, when it comes down to it, from their perspective, this could be good for business. That is Elon Musk's perspective. It is the Twitter board's perspective. There's the question then of the platform. So there's Twitter, the business, the money-making entity. But then there's the platform that we all use, right, that we all know and love. I mean, I'm on Twitter all the time. So many people are on Twitter. And how does Twitter change after this deal goes through? Of course, Musk says, yes, he's a free speech absolutist. If we look at on Monday, what hashtags were trending right after the announcement that this deal was in the works, the two top trending hashtags were reinstate Trump and make Twitter great again. So I think that is where, maybe not where Musk is going with it, but it's a sign of where people on the right are hoping that a free speech absolutist would go to reinstate folks like Donald Trump, um, Alex Jones and others, you know, on the far right, you know, who have been shut off of Twitter. But it ignores all of the people on the left, um, people who are anti-imperialist, people who are just reporting, you know, truth or information. I think about Scott Ritter. I think about so many other folks who, you know, 
like them or not, they're not harming anyone. They're not threatening anyone, but they are out there, you know, pointing out information that the mainstream media, just as this station does, frankly, is not going to be, you know, doing. So I, I think that's that's getting ignored in this. And I think, you know, would a free speech absolutist let all of those accounts back on? I mean, probably uh, there would be a major uproar. Um, but I think it's for Musk, it's about the attention. I think for him, it's about being very flashy with his money. Um yeah, I, I don't really know. It's hard to say in six months where Elon Musk's mind is going to be. And of course, there is still going to be other structure at Twitter. There will be a board of some kind um, who will you know, need to advise on certain policy and, you know, organizational changes. So it's not like Musk is going to come in and, you know, dictate overnight an immediate change to everything that Twitter runs as. But I am concerned about, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, Elon Musk has a habit of just kind of shutting down uh, anyone who disagrees with him to the point of, you know, he has sent people to harass former Tesla engineers who have, you know, called out issues with its products or its labor. So, I mean, for a free speech absolutist, that's not very absolute if the criticism you don't allow is that of, of you. And that could be disturbing, especially for a social media platform. Um, yeah, that's that could be disturbing for a social media platform. It's like I'm totally for free speech as long as it's not against me. I, I am curious on something else. Are there any one of the concerns or one of the conversation pieces that came up was him taking Twitter potentially private, especially if that was necessary for him to do what he wanted to do with Twitter, whatever that means. So is there I mean, are there any entanglements? Are there any legalities against him doing that? I mean, I would imagine that there were pre-deals or deals before Musk came into Twitter that still need to be honored. How does that stuff work going forward with him basically buying them out? Well, the one thing I can comment on there that I know for sure is that many Twitter employees are upset with that notice because they have what's called RSUs, restricted stock units, and they get these and they earn them as they work there. And they have a vesting time of four years. And if these employees decide in the next six months that they're going to leave, um, they even if Twitter is going private, those stop that Twitter has announced those RSUs will not be vested early. So uh, it's basically like, you know, you're getting stock, you know, you're getting a little bonus on top of your paycheck, except you have to wait four years to cash it out. Right. Um, and Twitter has said, you know, we know everyone is concerned. We know everything is very uncertain, but we're going to maintain the four year vesting period for these RSUs. So if people are leaving for out of you know concern for themselves, out of just they oppose what their company is doing, um, they're leaving. They're going to have to leave all of that money on the table. And Twitter employees are you know pretty upset about the fact that the company is doing that. That is amazing. Uh I, I'm curious, how do you think this is going to basically turn out? Do you, from your standpoint, um, looking at the changes that may take place in Twitter, what are your expectations for it? Like you said, I, I know that bringing on Trump or Alex Jones back or something to that effect. But are you thinking of any more substantial changes that are going to take place in a platform based on, I guess, anything that Musk has said prior? Well, I mean, he promised us an edit button frankly. So maybe we'll finally get that edit button on Twitter. But that I'm with that. I'm with that. Jamaral is not, yeah. by the way. I, I'm actually I'm also not. But um, that's not a reason to support, uh, even if you want it, not a good reason to support Elon Musk's move here. No, I, I think that, um, you know, frankly, the 
the fact is that, you know, anyone can publish and post on Twitter, but the Twitter algorithms are what promote content. They, they're what decide, you know, decide what you're going to see when you log in and what your friends are going to see when they log in and what somebody around the world is going to see. And it's probably not going to be your content being one person. It's going to be some mass media thing. And that's the real concern, right? Is the, the consolidation of media in this country, including social media. And so if we see, you know, Elon Musk even promising to open source the algorithm, I mean, that means absolutely nothing. It frankly, means nothing. Right. It's because most people don't understand what what that actually means, you know, in 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 the actual practice or execution of it. We should note that um, due to their SEC filings, I was able to find out that 89 percent of Twitter's um, uh, profits, the only time that they ever made any money was in 2018. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 billion bucks. Eighty nine percent of it came from advertising. That advertising comes from as you mentioned, Chris, these big mainstream media outlets who are paying to basically boost their posts and, and, and other stuff, you know, other sponsored content. It just doesn't, the thing is, they don't tell you it's sponsored. It just shows up in your feed all the time. It doesn't, I mean, they're starting to show some that are sponsored, but generally speaking, if NBC puts up a post, it's going to show up in your feed because they get the bump. Um, but then you have people like me who get labeled uh, Russian state-affiliated media when Russia had no control over, the Kremlin has no control over my Twitter and never has, then they specifically say, my tweets will be suppressed. And they, But they don't talk about that. They don't talk about, they don't tell you the full truth because 89% of that $1.2 billion in profits comes from advertising. 11% comes from selling your data and other B2B uh, adventures that's right. That's and that's exactly what Twitter is. It's an advertising company. It's a data company. Same with Google. Same with Facebook. They just happen to run different services on top of those facades in order to, you know, get that information from us and to show us those ads. I mean, we wouldn't just sit here and look at ads all day if that's what they were trying to do, right? But they, you know, they, let, they create these platforms. Um, yeah, I, I mean. Yeah, I mean, you have been, you know, labeled as Russian state media. So many people we know have been labeled as Russian state media who, you know, have never been to Russia, who have never, you know. Me neither. Yeah, uh, it's ridiculous. And I don't think that's going to get any better either, because we also have to remember Twitter plays a really important part in conjunction with like the U.S. State Department and the CIA in achieving, you know, U.S., Imperial ambitions overseas. You know, we saw that, uh, you know, TikTok influencers were, were invited to the White House to get a briefing on Ukraine. You know, Twitter often shuts down accounts of, you know, Venezuelans, of Russians, of Iranians and Syrians, um, you know, anyone who's in a country opposing U.S. hegemony. Um, and so Twitter plays this extremely important role. And the U.S. government knows that. Facebook also, you know, Instagram, all of these companies do. And so they're they're not going to just let this company be this free speech absolutist place, including opposing voices from Russia or, you know, supposedly from Russia. Right. That I don't think that's going to change. I think, you know, the government is going to try to come to an understanding, I'll say, or force uh, Musk to continue to do these policies, whether or not he personally wants them or even cares about them. And maybe secondary to the point. Chris, thank you for this, man. Great rundown um, of events that are taking place with Twitter. Really good rundown. We were trying to have this conversation for a while, so I'm glad we were able to get you on board. Chris Garoppa, 
editor of techforthepeople.org and co-host of Reboot Podcasts. You can find him on Twitter at CMG. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Vanilla Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. We have 440 in the chat. Definitely smash that like button or smash that rumble button as hard as you possibly can. Break your mouse hitting that button. (laughs) Um, Don't do that. Don't do that. But definitely hit that rumble button and definitely share this content. Um, great guess, um, um, Chris. I mean, I love that conversation because he can explain, like, he's right about this element that a lot of people miss. Oftentimes you hear right-wingers saying, oh, they're, they're persecuting us on the right. And what they miss are groups like Telesur, who gets taken off, the oppressed TV that would get taken off in a heartbeat, Palestinians, et cetera. Same thing with Facebook, where you would get all of these people who are on the outs of this kind of U.S., let's say, point of view. You're not in the in crowd. You're not in the in crowd. You need this context lens for the American perspective. Um, But they don't like that. And so from their standpoint, they would eliminate it. And maybe on some level, this kind of dovetail with the failure of U.S. media. Like all things being equal, you would want the media to give you this kind of... You're not referring to CNN Plus, are you? Or a little bit. One of them. Yeah. CNN Plus is included in that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, but it's this notion that their responsibility, they've debased themselves in regards to their real philosophical and ethical responsibility to ensure that the public gets information. Meaning, how do I know what my government is doing if my government or if I don't have some edifice in the society in order to shed a light on it? And if they're not shedding a light on it honestly or worse, colluding with that particular government to give a particular narrative to the public in order to corral that public into a mindset and a framing and a point of view, they failed in their responsibility. Social media was supposed to be the promise of something where the public itself had this ability to bring up their own stories, talk about that stuff, and even that gets corralled. Right, it's self-representation in your own voice. Yes. And it was supposed to be, I think, this is probably one of the problems that greatly dismayed Jack Dorsey, was that Twitter was supposed to be the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. And I remember back, and I was living in the Middle East, you know, back when Twitter's early days, and I remember when Justin Timberlake got his his Twitter account. And he actually was a proponent of it because he thought it was so cool that there was this place where he was just a dude. He wasn't JT, the just you know big dude. pop star. He was, <laughs> right. He's just some dude on this feed and everybody else could communicate with him and he could communicate back with his fans. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, oh, wow, this, this is the great equalizer. We're all equal yeah. on Twitter. I mean, this is like 15 years ago, right? I mean, it it became, since then, this toxic, awful, horrible (laughs) environment, not only by the the users, 
who are, you know, spewing sexism, racism, misogyny, you name it, yeah. right? It's all there. I, I am a proponent of free speech. I get it. If you want to say all of those things, you want to be an awful human, that's on you. That, I mean, that's on you. That, that's fine. But I also have a lot thicker skin than I would say the average person. I've had stuff directed at me on Twitter. I just wanted to recently test Twitter's, I don't know if it's their, an algorithm that does it or a, a person when you re- report that, you know, somebody's being abusive. Yeah. Right? Uh, do they, they have to know, right? I am a minority woman. Hello, right? Like I'm an Asian female, right? I know like they, you know, they're the people in Silicon Valley may not want to address that, but I am an, a minority Asian woman. I'm supposed to be, quote, a protected class. Maybe not anymore. Well, but, that's a Russian agent right, but that on your account. Supersedes, <laughs> that supersedes <laughs> right. my minority status, my right, protected right. status, right? So I guess it's just... You're fair game at that point. Right, I'm fair game. So, all right, I guess so. <laughs> because there was this hater that directed a comment to me and another a South Asian woman, a friend of mine, and said that we, we being Asians, eat bats and dogs and what have you. And, and another person tweeted, why would you say that? How do you know what they eat? Yeah. And he said specifically about me, being East Asian, he said, she's Chinese. You're Chinese? I am Lao and Chinese. Yeah. And so I report it just to, to test whether it's an algorithm or a person that makes this, you know, this discretion, right, of, okay, that is a violation of our terms of service because you are using hateful language. I've never reported anyone before because I really don't care. But this time I thought, all right, let's put this to the test. I report them. They come back to me a couple days later and rule in the guy's favor that he hasn't broken any, he, I don't know if it's a he, but he hasn't broken any of their any of their rules that mm-hmm. it's not hateful speech. Wow, really? At a time during hashtag Asian hate, yeah. hashtag COVID, hashtag China virus, really? You're going to say, all right, I don't truly, I'm, I mean, I don't care. Again, because I, I personally don't. Yeah. But what it does to the greater community, I understand why my, my Asian American community would be dismayed reading such a comment. But, who decided at Twitter that that comment is okay and not racist? Yeah. But if they issued some other stereotype, let's say, you know, like Trump said about Latinos bringing all these drugs over the borders or whatever, they're drug mules. Mexicans are, uh, what do you say, race, um, drug, what do you say, drugs? Some of them are good people, something right. like that. When you came down the escalator. Good people. Yeah. But I mean, they, rapists and drug dealers, rapists? something like that. Yeah. But that's my point. It's like, so. so so you can't say some things about some protected classes, but you can say things about others. And who's the arbiter of that? Is it your algorithm? Is it some ass clown sitting in Silicon Valley, like deciding, oh, this Manila Chan, oh, I was going to side in her favor. Oh, but look, it says she's Russian state-affiliated media. I mean, I guess the question is, how do you resolve that? I mean, meaning, do you want, an, I mean, I don't think there's a, 
For one, I don't think there's a way for an algorithm to do that, just in general. I think you almost require a person just because of the way language can get kind of tricky and you need to know context and everything else. So there's that part. But on the second part, it seems that it is massively subjective. I mean, even for YouTube. YouTube, in Section 230 stuff, was supposed to be basically you're not making a choice, meaning you're not picking and choosing. You're looking at, you have all of these people are putting their stuff up, and as long as they're not putting something up that is abusive, that is trying to hire ISIS and, you know, to recruit or something like that, um, then you should be fair game. They've taken my channel down in the past, and they've come back and said, oh, our bad. You went to YouTube bad. jail. Yeah, YouTube jail. And they would come back and say, our bad. We were too um, aggressive on taking it down. And it's like, what do you mean you were too aggressive in taking it down? If you were too aggressive in taking it down, that gets across that you guys are making a choice. This is not something that is like ironclad, flat fact. Here's our rules set. Massively subjective. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's they, yes. they apply their rules subjectively. Yes. And I think that's what pisses people off. Should there be legalities around it? That's what I mean when I was like, how do you fix that? Because ultimately, look, people make this argument that, oh, it's a private company to do it. Nonsense. Just because something is a private company doesn't necessarily mean there aren't laws governing how that company engages in whatever community that they're in, like outside, you know, you can't. For me, this is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is a business. It's there to make money. It's there to do whatever. It's not there to protect my feelings. It's not there to, you know, there there are certain laws as a business you have to abide by, obviously, but it's not there. Twitter and Elon Musk can protect my rights or my safety as, you know, on Twitter as much as they can on the street. Yes. Right. So that's that's the way I see it. But when you don't apply your rules, like we were talking earlier, no shoes, no shirt, no service. (laughs) If you don't apply that equally to everybody, then there's a problem there. As far as the hate itself, that there's no law. There's no law or business practice that can ever change that. It is the 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 result of it's a symptom of what's in somebody's heart and other failures in their lives, in the way they were brought up, whether, you know, hate is learned, hate is developed. So when you're spewing this hate and terrible ideological views on whatever, it's a symptom of another thing that no business, no entity, no law can cure. That is on you to fix it yourself, your family to raise you right. And if you didn't have a family, then hopefully there is a a social safety net that has been there, that didn't fail you, that will support you and feed you and educate you and house you and teach you values of valuing other human beings. So when I see that that hate online, to me, again, my thick skin, I don't care. But I do feel bad for them because it means somewhere else in their life, somebody effed up. Or society. Society effed up. I suspect the letter stuff is cultural. It is it's symptomatic of something else. But let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment with Dan Kavalik. This should be a really good conversation. You're not gonna want to miss that. We're gonna have this conversation about NATO, not to mention the events that are taking place in Ukraine currently. Fault lines, back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And the big news this morning, 
is the shutoff of gas going to Poland and Bulgaria? And I'll just read it. Russian state-controlled gas company Gazprom said Wednesday that it has shut off the supply of natural gas to Poland and Bulgaria, a move that marks a significant escalation in the economic tensions between Moscow and the West over the war in Ukraine. Gazprom said in a statement, it has shut the gas off gas supply to Poland's PGNIG gas company in Bulgaria's Bulgares because it, they had not complied with the mandate from Russian President Vladimir Putin to pay in rubles. The suspension will persist from Wednesday, quote, until the payments are made, unquote, in rubles. And this is what Gazprom said. This is among many of the issues that are taking place between the West um, and Moscow currently. So let's go into a conversation on this and other issues. We're joined with Dan Kavala. He's an American human rights, labor rights lawyer, and peace activist. He's also a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Professor Kavala, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Very good. Thanks for having me. No, I, I thank you for joining us. And I want to get your take just on that bit of news this morning. I mean, when Russia came out basically saying, look, you guys are going to pay us in rubles for the obvious reason that you have cut off our currency, meaning we can't use your money. And so we need something in exchange for this product that you guys clearly and desperately need. And so on some level, it's like, well, no, duh. It's perfectly conceivable that a country is going to respond to the fact that you're basically waging an economic war against it. Well, Bulgaria and Poland basically went the other route with that. The European Union had come up basically saying, look, there's a way to do this and it wouldn't necessarily break sanctions. But basically, they were given a pass on sanctions to the UK, especially around this issue of gas. So what does this mean going forward that Poland and Bulgaria has basically taken the stance? Um, or does this mean anything going forward from the standpoint of Europe? Right, their, their insistence, Dan, of saying, take our euros. How dare you not take our euros is... I would say the equivalent of like, here is a boatload of golf balls. Right. We're going to pay you in golf balls. A billion golf balls. For some gas. <laughs> right, right, right. And then the, the Russians are like, dude, this, this shop doesn't accept golf balls for our gas. Like, what, what is wrong with a, a business like Gazprom saying, hey, we don't accept Amex. We don't accept euros. We, we accept, it's cash only, rubles. Especially when it doesn't have any value. <laughs> because of an economic Gobbles. war. Gobbles. Danny, what's your thought, Daniel? No, I agree with you. The West started this with its very draconian sanctions against Russia, which largely prevent Russia from trading uh, in dollars and euros, uh, using the SWIFT system to move money around, which is the predominant system of banking in the world. Meanwhile, we also have to remember the U.S. seized half of all of Russia's uh, financial reserves, about $30 billion, just stolen from Russia. Okay, so, you know, Russia has an interest in trying to keep their economy afloat. And as you say, at this point, uh, rubles are, you know, uh, their currency that they're going to trade in. They can insist on that. Um, and, and there doesn't seem to be, to me, anything wrong with that. And again, Russia has been put in a situation where actually they don't have much of a choice. You know, uh, one of the other items I want to get to has to do with the war proper. And this has to do with this. So right here, um, Lloyd Austin was in Germany, basically trying to organize many of the other nations. I think it was 40 U.S. allies to send even more weapons, even more munitions, um, to Ukraine. And many of the reports are coming out showing that NATO is basically running out of many of the weapons that they're sending them. And they even started sending higher caliber systems. Well, Russia has been attacking either train stations in order to prevent those weapons from getting from point A to point B. 
And apparently there were attacks last night that also hit a huge weapon cache. This seems problematic. And the reason this seems problematic should be on its face and should be obvious. It seems that we're in a one-degree proxy war with another nuclear-powered nation. And Austin is basically saying, we're going to move heaven and earth. Meaning we're going to continue to send this equipment, continue to send this hardware. And it seems that we're inching closer and closer to the brink. What is your take on this? Are you concerned that these guys are getting so wrapped up in an ideological position that good sense would just go out the window in its entirety? Yes, I am very concerned. I mean, I think uh, particularly for the United States and the UK that they want to win this war at all costs. And at the moment, it looks like Russia you know, has, has you know, virtually won the war, um, the war that they wanted to, to wage, which is uh, in the Donbass region. And so if the U.S. and U.K. are hell-bent on winning this, they would have to engage in extreme measures. And I am fearful that they may be willing uh, to do that, to expand the war beyond the borders of Russia and Ukraine. And by the way, there's some evidence of that. In the last 24 hours, uh, Ukrainian forces attacked two radio uh, towers in Moldova, which is a breakaway republic, uh, whose troops, by the way, are from Romania. That's who protects Moldova. Uh, And by the way, there's Russian troops there, also peacekeepers. And so you're already seeing this bleeding into other countries, of this war. And I am afraid that there are people in Washington who are happy to see that happen and who do want a direct confrontation with Russia. Disturbing, to put it mildly. Are you concerned about the expansion of this? I mean, like you said, it's spilled over into Moldova. There are calls for, right here, the UK was calling for attacks in Russia itself, proper. And it's like, Dude, what do you think is going to be the response? I mean, in many respects, Russia was restrained, even by U.S. standards or by Western standards. Wait, when you're looking at Western publications that are being honest, and of course, they're going to be anonymous when they say so, but that basically this has been somewhat of a restrained campaign. If you're hitting in Russia proper, they've been warned that they can go after, what do they call it, brain trusts or, or centers of um, decision-making centers in Kiev. I mean, this seems like really disastrous. And then the media's response to this is basically to give one very specific story, seemingly avoiding and missing the potential for this to go tragically, catastrophically wrong. Yes, well, I agree. And you see these quotes from U.S. officials saying they want to break Russia. Um, You know, and you don't hear Russia saying that, by the way, ever about the United States, about the EU. Or even about Ukraine. I mean, you know, I, I think they see themselves as in a in a defensive posture vis-a-vis Ukraine and NATO, but they're not out to break anybody. But we clearly are uh, out to break Russia. And it, it is disturbing that many, uh, you know, liberals in this country, in the press corps and elsewhere, seem eager to have a confrontation with Russia. I mean, we have been so groomed over the years to hate Russia, uh, that I, I think for a large part of the population, it would not be hard to win them over to the idea of attacking Russia, though the latest polls show that a majority of Americans do not want to send U.S. troops uh, to Ukraine. So that's good. I mean, I think the American people really don't want this war to expand 
But again, I, I, I'm not sure our leaders care what the American people want. Dan, you know, yesterday uh, it was revealed that Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, said, and maybe this is a lost in translation thing. I, I don't think so. I think it's a coordinated thing uh, by the media and Jen Psaki and, and you know, all their cohorts. Um, Sergei Lavrov said that that while the threat of nuclear war is serious and real, personally, I think he meant it, it is, it's a, it's serious. It's a serious matter. Not like this is seriously going to happen. But that is how the media was spinning it yesterday. It was, oh, Sergei Lavrov was saying this is seriously going to happen. And like I went, he's threatening nuclear war. Right, that he's yeah. threatening nuclear war, World War III, if the U.S. invades. And then you have Antony Blinken going around saying, we're, you know, we need to weaken and, and break Russia. We're behind you, Volodymyr Zelensky. What, on what planet do they think that this is a, a good idea to twist the words of Sergei Lavrov into something like this? I mean, this is, this is I, I would say, the most, the, the height of fear-mongering that I have seen since this two-month incursion. Well, I agree. I mean, frankly, it's probably the most bellicose uh, rhetoric that I've ever seen in my lifetime uh, against Russia, even when it was the Soviet Union. Uh, and again, I, I think that there are leaders in Washington crazy enough to risk a nuclear war uh, with Russia. I think in large part because the U.S. economy is on a tailspin at this point. I, I don't think they see any way out of, of the crisis we're in. They realize the U.S. does not have the influence it has in the world, either economically or politically. Um, and they may think a war is a way to to change that uh, calculus. Uh, again, I think it's insane, but I think there's people who do believe that, and it's those people that we need to fight against. I think there's also those pushing against that. Strangely enough, the Pentagon seems to not be excited about such a war because they realize that it could be devastating uh, for the EU and the United States. And they seem to be pushing against a lot of the propaganda. Um, it seems like Biden himself does not want this to expand. And that's why you see, I think, Biden being increasingly sidelined in Washington. Wait, you said Biden doesn't want it to expand? Biden has been belligerent. Now, now why do you think so? I mean, I, I would have believed you going back, let's say, a year ago when Biden did the Putin summit and everything else. It legitimately seemed that Biden was trying to bring down hostilities. I mean, I saw the media go after him like howl monkeys. I mean, Biden, I mean, they, it was insane. Biden came out, he gave the media what they needed, meaning they needed him to be belligerent for the first few minutes. And then he started sounding more like Putin in the sense of, hey, we're going to be um, working together in these kind of meetings. We're going to try to get closer, et cetera. Well, that, the chain seems to be off of that. I mean, Biden gave a speech basically saying that he wants to balkanize Russia, for God's sake, saying we got to get rid of Putin. I think that was an articulation of policy. I don't believe for a moment that that was just a, a quip. And then when you look at Austin, Blinken, some of the stuff that these guys have been saying, they don't seem to be taking a turn um, to bring down hostilities in this. It seems to be the exact opposite. Yeah, well, I certainly agree that Blinken and Austin are in the neocon camp. And, and pushing for a wider conflict. And I agree that at times Biden is less than clear on that issue. Uh, but, you know, from people like Douglas McGregor, who was uh, uh, 
in the U.S. military. He was an advisor to Trump in the National Security Council. Um, people like him are saying they think Biden does not want this to expand, though I do agree that he probably did want the conflict in Ukraine and is happy to use Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. But I don't think he wants a wider war. Uh, but though, again, he could be pushed into it. And that, that's my fear. I do think there are people pushing him into it. And I think he reacts to that and sometimes says things to placate them. So we'll see. But uh, again, I do think that uh, amongst those in the White House, he's one of the more uh, rational and sane people, believe it or not. And maybe that's a scary idea that he's one of the more rational ones. But we'll have to see. I mean, again, I can't read minds, but it, but it is my view that that he – uh, doesn't want this to expand, and I think it's very interesting that the uh, you know Hunter Biden computer, which everyone, the mainstream media had kind of buried that story and poo-pooed it. Now, of course, the New York Times is saying, oh well, the computer's real, and, and these corrupt dealings uh, between Hunter Biden and Ukraine and China they really did happen. And again, I do think that's part of 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 a concerted effort to undermine Biden because they do see him as a bit dovish on this issue. I'm curious from your standpoint, oftentimes when I look at this, I think this is the culmination of like 40 years of policy coming to a head. All of these guys knew that expanding NATO was going to be a provocation and a red line. Every last one of them knew it. And they knew this at the fall of the Soviet Union. They wouldn't have come out with the red, you know, the, the one moving inch comment if they didn't understand that. Or for that matter, William Burns, yet means yet. And that um, memo basically saying, look, our provocation in Ukraine is going to create a situation where Russia either has to go in or allow themselves to be encircled. This is a problem going forward. Do you believe that this was a situation where they just kind of assumed, look, yeah, this will create a provocation at some point, but neither outcome is good for Russia. So because neither outcome is good for Russia and because both outcomes basically puts Moscow in a situation that it doesn't necessarily want to be in that this is a way to go, even if that means creating this kind of catastrophe in Europe. Do you think that's what a mindset is? Or what do you think, like, the logic is? Do you think that this is just flagrant incompetence or policy being brought to fruition? Well, it may be both. It may be incompetent. But I do think that uh, the plan has been what you say, and that is to provoke a response of the kind we've seen from Russia uh, to draw them into Ukraine as the Soviet Union was drawn by Brzezinski into Afghanistan and to thereby weaken Russia. I do think that has been the plan all along. Uh, and again, I think Biden was part of that plan as well. And so, yeah, I think what we're seeing is the result of a very calculated policy. I mean, Biden, even as, as U.S. senator was saying, the more you know, if we keep expanding NATO towards Russia, they're going to have to respond. So everyone knew that this was going to be the result. And in the 11th hour, of course, Putin gave a way out of this, said, you know, just tell us you're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO and that, you know, Ukraine's going to stop attacking the Donbass. You know, they had very modest requests, which we refused to consider. respond to in a po positive way. So we knew this was going to happen. Yeah, and I do think that's part of the plan. And the, and the plan certainly is to use Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. The U.S. is willing to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Dan, at, at the top of this hour, there was, was breaking news that the U.S. and Russia are having this prisoner exchange. Now, not necessarily these high-profile 
cases that people might be thinking of, like the the women's basketball player that's in stuck in Moscow, or you know, uh, names that we've we've seen across the news. This this guy, uh, Trevor Reed, an ex U.S. Marine, uh, apparently got in a bar fight a couple years ago, and then or not a bar fight, excuse me, was drunk at a bar and then decided to fight the police on the street. Uh, we're trading uh, a Russian pilot accused of smuggling cocaine into Connecticut. Uh, we're trading for that guy. Uh, does that indicate anything to you that perhaps the door to diplomacy that the State Department, you know, for a moment there, seems like they're confusing themselves with the DOD and Tony Blinken thought maybe he had uh, Austin's job, that he was the SECDEF. Do you think in this case, because this comes through the State Department, do you think that they are starting to possibly decide on doing what they're supposed to do, which is diplomacy? I certainly hope that that's the case. Uh, Certainly it's a positive sign in that direction, though every other sign points to, you know, the the eschewing of of diplomacy. But obviously that's what the U.S. needs to do. I mean, that's what we should be pushing for. Obviously the only way out of this crisis is by a diplomatic solution. Uh, Again, I think there's some people in Washington that want that. Uh, You saw the EU say that they're going to have to repair relations with Russia. Obviously, that's some sign of a concession. I think, again, the rational person has to understand that we need to live with Russia, right? They ain't going away. And uh, they're an important country. And uh, they're a rational actor on the world stage. And and we can work with them. And, And again, I hope the cooler heads will prevail prevail. Maybe the hostage exchange is some evidence that that could happen. I certainly hope so. The great separation, I think that was the way Mark um, Sloboda described what's basically taking place, this kind of um, breakdown of globalism that has been taken over for the last uh, several decades. How do you see the security architecture of Europe at the end of this conflict? Because some, invariably, it has to end. Um, and whether that takes a few months or whether that takes several years, whether there's this kind of, um, momentum going forward after the conflict, however that looks like. From your standpoint, what do you think that looks like? Because I got to be honest, it seems that things are going to be different going forward from here on out, from an economic standpoint and even from the standpoint of these kind of spheres of the globe um, and the way that it seems to have bifurcated. What is your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think NATO's going to have a hard time staying together as a unified uh, group in Europe because I think the Europeans are seeing that uh, the sanctions against Russia or is aimed against them as it is against Russia, right? They're going to be hurt badly by this, by the lack of natural gas, which could increase cost to them by multiples, you know, and could really ruin the economies of countries like Germany, which, again, I'm not sure was uh, unintentional on the part of the United States, right? I think they also want a competitive advantage against Europe and saw a way to do it. And these sanctions, and I think once the Europeans wake up to that, they may decide that the U.S. uh, and the U.K. as well, which is just a, you know, uh, really a puppet of the U.S., uh, are not uh, partners in good faith. And and they may go their own way, or at least some of the countries in Europe may do that. So, and we're already seeing a bit of a frame in that regard. So I do think that you're going to see a realignment 
in Europe in a major way, as you say, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think it will happen. Realignment. What is that? Wow. Okay. That's, that's a lot to unpack on that one. Define that. Yeah. How would you define realignment? I think some countries will stay in the fold united with the U.S. and U.K., and I think others will go their own way and make their own peace with Russia, make their own peace with China, because I think, again, they're going to realize, if they haven't already, that the U.S. and the U.K. do not have their best interest at heart. Wow. And so you really do believe that this might have been intentional on some level in regards to policy, that if we can damage Europe in the process of going, meaning kill multiple birds with one stone, even an ally in this situation. I think that's very clear. I mean, uh, again, the idea of denying them natural gas from Russia, which, you know, is going to be hugely uh, cheaper for them uh, than gas from the United States. Sure. I mean, if it wasn't done intentionally, it was done knowingly and recklessly. I mean, in Germany, for example, you have unions there saying we have to have this natural gas in order for the industries to keep going and for us to have jobs, right? I mean, yeah. um, that's just an obvious point in that the U.S. would be willing to sacrifice German industry and other industries in Europe for this adventure shows, again, at least a knowing attempt to uh, undermine Europe itself. And remember that Victoria Newland, her famous words in 2014 <laughs> was, F Europe. Oh, oh wait, oh, you can't say that. We yeah, can, we can't you're on the radio. Say that Let's word, drop but, that part. Yeah. Um, but, but Dan, um, you, to your point about Germany, um, <laughs> that under Biden, at, right after he was inaugurated, Angela Merkel took her one last, you know, farewell tour, right? She made a pit stop here in D.C. as she was retiring, and she stopped in on the White House and told President Biden, we are going to finish Nord Stream 2. Whether you like it or not, this is my swan song. This thing is being completed. Deal with it. It's happening. Goodbye. And she left, right? And Nord Stream, you know, was was completed. It was just do, under undergoing its final... Um, checks for, you know, the authorization to start running it, right? They were already starting to run um, uh, test test runs of the, the pipeline. But then in comes Olaf Scholz, who was kind of eh, straddling the lines of, well, I know my people need this gas, but Joe Biden says I can't. He keeps saying in these speeches that that we can't operate Nord Stream 2. So one... One thing here is, does that show how much of a client state Germany has become to the U.S. and subservient to the U.S.? And secondly, what happened with, I mean, Angela Merkel dug her heels in and literally a couple of months later under Olaf Scholz, everything goes out the window. And, and this was a joint project, mind you. Not It wasn't just a Russian project. It was a joint project between the German state and the Russian state. Yeah, well, I think Schultz is simply a different leader than uh, Merkel. I don't think Merkel would have given into this. And I think Schultz's uh, political life uh, will come to a quick end because he, you know, obviously is willing to sacrifice Germany uh, for the U.S.'s geopolitical interest, which is insane. It's absolutely insane. 
and uh, he and his party will be done. They, they will destroy themselves over this because it makes no sense from a national interest point of view. And uh, so, someone else will get voted in who are, would be willing to uh, get that gas flowing again from Russia. Yeah, he, he basically allowed, Olaf Schultz did, allowed Joe Biden to take their their joint project, Nord Stream 2, and weaponize it. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, and got rid of something that they needed. Right. I mean, they desperately need it. Um, one more question before we go. We've got about two minutes. Um, a conversation took place yesterday between Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, who basically visited Moscow and was having a conversation with Putin. And so Putin basically told him, he says, Moscow moved to recognize the breakaway republics of Donetsk and Luhansk was based on the Kosovo precedent set by the UN-backed court. And right here, quote, I remember very well the decision by the International Court of Justice, which states that in exercising the right of self-determination, a territory of any state is not obliged to apply for permission to declare its sovereignty to the central authorities of the country, Putin said. Now, of course, this is pretty pointed, and he is making a historical point. What is your take on that? I am very curious on how you see that that comment. Well, he obviously has a good point. You know, I mean, everything that Russia is doing in Ukraine, uh, the U.S. and NATO have done uh, on a much larger scale and in much, you know, uh, more far-flung countries, right? Like Libya, for example. Um, of course, the U.S. has set this precedent as you say, with Kosovo, but with other countries as well. Uh, it, it, you know, the U.S. has decided it will recognize any country uh, it wants. It will recognize opposition in countries as the real leaders, right, in, in Venezuela. that You know, they picked out Juan Guaido, seemingly his name, out of a hat and declared him president. And so what Russia's doing, you know, uh, is not even as extreme as that. So the U.S. has set this precedent uh, that it will do what it wants at any time, and they find a legal fig leaf to justify it. And we're going to have to close it here, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. Daniel Kovalik is an American human rights labor lawyer, peace activist, and professor at University of Pittsburgh. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And then somewhere in the center, I'm the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. Right on. Love that conversation with Dan. Yeah, Dan Dan was one of my favorites that we would have on RT. Oh, so he was one of the guests that oh, used yes. to join. Yeah, okay. all the time. He's he's excellent. He's so knowledgeable on a, a variety of topics. And and lately he's been kind of doing kind of journalism work where, yeah. where he's actually going to, you know, hot spots and, and seeing for himself what, what's happening. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed having that is very having cool. Dan, having him on again. Yeah, very knowledgeable of that stuff. Hats meet again. I like that. (laughs) Hats meet again. So let's do this. Let's get into the headlines. In the news, 
In national news, the Twitter board members who accepted Elon Musk's purchase of the social media platform on Monday gave tens of thousands of campaign contributions to mostly Democratic candidates. Again, entirely coincidental, right? According to OpenSecrets.org in the New York Post, some of the 11-member Twitter board donated a significant amount of money to Democratic candidates during the 2020 election cycle. I'm sure they had zero to do with that story from the New York Post protecting Joe Biden being blocked. Only 41% of Americans 18 to 29 approve of Joe Biden's performance as president, a new survey revealed on Monday. According to the polling from Harvard Institute of Politics, President Joe Biden's approval rating has dropped nearly 20% in just one year amid skyrocketing living, skyrocketing living costs, near-record gas prices, which pro-democratic media outlets have unsuccessfully attempted to pin on Russia. Not to mention failure to get policy accomplished, not to mention the failure in Afghanistan. You can pick and choose even the 500,000 people that dropped dead from COVID under Biden's watch. This has not been a successful administration by any stretch of the imagination. Disgraced ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin has asked the state court to appeal uh, of appeals to overturn his conviction for the 2020 murder of George Floyd, according to the appeal that was filed on Monday. Let's keep going. In international news, the Russian Federation has halted its gas supplies to Bulgaria and Poland after two NATO countries refused to pay in rubles. The move by Russian authorities was immediately slammed as blackmail, blackmail, by Bulgarian Prime Minister Kirill Petkov. Yeah, Petkov. The state, uh, this step by the Kremlin comes amid increased tensions over European countries joining the United States in ramping up arms deliveries to Ukraine. If the Biden administration goes ahead with arms supplies to Ukraine amid the ongoing Russian special military operation in the country, the United States weapons stockpiles may run out in several months, some senators and experts have warned. Speaking at a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing on Tuesday, Ellen Lord, former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, called the situation, quote, a huge threat, unquote, to national security, according to the news agency Bloomberg. Lord added that the United States has already sent nearly a quarter of its stockpile of Stinger anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine. Just think you're sending that many weapons. Wow. Israeli warplanes carried out new attack near Syrian capital last night, killing and wounding a number of soldiers in the process. According to Syrian state media, the Syrian air defenses intercepted several missiles over Damascus before some of the projectiles hit their target in the capital city's countryside. In Earth and Science News, probably my one of my favorite stories for today, members of NASA's international research team found in meteorite samples two missing nucleotides that are part of DNA and RNA proving that all five nitrogenous bases of the key molecules of life could be transported by asteroids, NASA reported on Tuesday. The discovered nucleotides were cytosine and thiamine used in the formation of DNA and RNA chains. According to the report, the other three components were found in space objects earlier, and the difficulty in finding the rest was caused by the fragile and delicate structures of the elements and the methods of analysis utilized by researchers. In previous experiments, scientists dissolved fallen meteorites into hot formic acid and analyzed the resulting liquid, the report said. Just to make that clear, because we kind of mentioned this earlier, that basically the means that they were using to understand or to discover the components of these rocks were basically destroying the thing that they were looking for in the first place. So whatever new technique or strategy that they've used for analysis, well, it allowed those particular nucleotides to 
come through where they can basically find and identify them. Very interesting. In business news, natural gas prices in Europe skyrocketed on Wednesday after Poland and Bulgaria were hit by a supply freeze from Russia in response to the country's refusal to pay for deliveries in rubles. Russian state energy giant and major gas exporter Gazprom said earlier on Wednesday it had completely halted gas flows to Bulgaria and Poland after the two countries failed to pay for April supplies in Russian currency. According to Gazprom, the suspension will remain in force until payment is received in rubles. And you know, that's somewhat of a misnomer, right? I mean, ultimately, it's just we require payment. And the currency that you're basically trying to give us, for all intents and purposes, like you said, you can give us golf balls. It's golf balls. Yeah, it's golf balls. It has no value to us. What do you want me to do with this? Yeah, it's like, here's this golf ball, and we would like all of this really expensive gas from you. Yeah, we don't take golf balls. We don't take golf balls. We take rubles. Um, in before the economic war and before you guys decided to go after us, we did take dollars. We did take euros when all of us were on the same page. But after you stole our foreign currency reserves, right. then no, no more. No more. Rubles. We need rubles. That's what we want. Just rubles. Just rubles. Um, yeah. Let's keep going. Weird news of the day. Oh, okay. I think. When I first looked at this, I thought this said white females. I was like, oh, God, where is oh, this no. going to go? But it says, while females of some species of spider display a tendency to devour their mates after sex. Look, some species of women and human, and human beings, same thing. I mean, behavior yeah, I note. that argument. <laughs> right. Some women are the same way, trust me. That's why that song Man Eater exists. She is a man eater. That's right. She's a man eater. Um, a behavior known as sexual cannibalism. It appears that the males of the orb-weaving spider, Phineplia prominius, has developed a peculiar method of escaping such a grisly fate, Smithsonian Magazine reports. A new study led by Chishang Zhang, an arachnologist from, uh, what is this, Huibei University, suggests that male philopenia, Yeah, uh, um, pronin spiders use their two front legs to literally catapult themselves to safety after mating with the females in order to avoid falling victim to their mate's appetite. Oh, wait, so they they get out of dodge. They get out of dodge. As soon as the... the project the is population complete. is finished. It's like we, you know, you get you well, get your I, rocks off. You can say that's similar to American men too. Yeah, jumping out of windows, trying you to get away get from. Out. Yeah, yeah, trying to trying to bail, trying Got to get it, away. Thank you. During the course of their study, the researchers determined that blocking the male spider's ability to jump away resulted in a female devouring him. Oh my that's God. leading credence to the idea that males' behavior is meant to help them survive and mate again. Think about that. So wait, how did you find that out? So you kneecapped the spider. So he couldn't get happened. away? Is that what you did? Oh, that's wrong. I wonder if it's a big spider, though. Like a, I need to look this up. A tarantula, like a big tarantula I, type spider? Or is I this don't like, know. No, because if they can leap and jump like that, they're usually very small. Yeah. Tiny little. Basically trying to get out of the way. I mean, I, I'm just mad at the researchers. They're like, okay, let's break his legs after sex so he can't get in, go anywhere. Jamar, you're mad that the researchers got a spider killed? Well, that just killed. That's a grisly fate. I mean, the thing was eaten alive. It, it happens in nature. Like, that's just what happens. Uh-uh. In nature, they develop oh, he can a... can jump away. Exactly. Exactly. But, but it's not like the woman, the woman, the female spider, that it doesn't sometimes capture the male permanently. Because there's got to be a male spider that... that Couldn't get away? Got bad knees. Yeah. You know, couldn't, just couldn't spring away. He got his rocks off, and then all and, of a sudden, he was, he was like... like yeah, chilling, and then before move. you know it, she bit his head off. 
But I mean, that's gotta happen. I mean, it happens. This is nature. Grizzly, you know, man. I don't want to see a baby zebra get eaten. You know, but a lion comes in and it happens. You know, speaking about that, when we, you know, I got married in Iceland, and when we were walking through Iceland one day, there was a bird that it was a swan. Yeah, it was a swan, and the swan was just kind of there, be like, oh, this swan is so cute, he's so adorable, everything else. You had ducks also that was nearby. The duck had several babies behind it. And again, the mama duck, the multiple babies behind it. The swan eats one of the baby ducks. Wait, they eat? They eat other fowl? The swan grabbed a baby duck and the people flipped out. The people lost their minds. They were trying to hit the swan with stuff and everything else. And at that point, yeah, kill the baby duck. Um, My ex at the time lost it. She was so angry. And my point to her was like, so wait, you just came from a burger joint. That swan did basically what you did. The only difference is the swan couldn't pay for a chef to make it smell and taste good. But all of you guys were basically angry at that swan for doing so. Look, it was a grizzly. It was a horrendous thing to watch. I'm I'm more confused with, I did not know that swans ate other fowl. That swan ate that baby or took that baby. Let's say it that way. The baby died as a result of what that swan did. I didn't know swans were carnivorous. I don't know what to tell you. I know that swan grabbed that baby. That one was. Everybody, everybody flipped out. You should have seen. Like all of the people, they were like, oh. And at that point, people were trying to take sticks. They hit the duck. Because it was, it was, it was carrying it at a certain point. Eventually it dropped it. But yeah, people flipped out. And my thing was like, dude, you guys eat chicken, fish, turkey, beef. We're we're the hunter too. We're supposed to be the, 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 the most apex of all apex species, right? right? Like, I, we're we're it. It's a bit of apex hypocrisy. Okay. No pun yes. intended. Yes, but <laughs> but I will tell you this. One time I was running, I was cutting through the hilly section of the grass in at my college. Yeah. And because I was late for a class and I was cutting through instead of walking down properly, right? I'm barreling through the grass and I see as I'm drawing nearer, the squirrel pick its head up and it's it looks at me like like menacingly. And as I draw closer, I realize what he's doing. He's eating a bird. Oh. The bird that he had a wing in his mouth, like the bird was like still flailing. And yeah. I was like, and I stopped dead in my tracks. It, oh, he gave me a nasty enough look that I stopped dead in my tracks. He looked at me, he's like, excuse me, don't You're walk this interrupting way. Interrupting my dinner. Yes, or lunch or whatever. Wow. I stopped dead in my tracks and I because I mean, you're young. You hadn't seen that much at the time, right? I was in college. I didn't know that squirrels were actually omnivores. Yeah, I didn't know that. Either. I, or, but I was also told that perhaps he was rabid because typically birds and squirrels live in harmony. But this is, you know, just a typical little brown bird you would see tweeting by. Not so much. He, he, he was eating like, a bird. And the bird was still like squirming, like dying. And I was, I was horrified. Yeah. You can see 20 some odd years later, this is still burned into my memory. But that is, it's nature. That is grizzly, man. That is grizzly. It happens. Yeah. It doesn't make it great. Just, well, it's like yeah, it just is. you don't is. have to like it. Yeah, it's, just this. It just is. It's what it is, what it is. This day in history, great story. I like that. That is a weird story. It was a man eater. Um, this day in history, in 1810, Ludwig van Beethoven composes, uh, I don't know how to Fuhr pronounce this. Elise. 
Dear Elise, thank you. I was yes. going to butcher it's that first beautiful, word. Beautiful, beautiful. I mean, you say it is. You know, I mean, I don't think I've heard it. this once, one. Once you hear it, you'll know it. I know what it is. Yeah. yeah. Once you hear it. In 1961, Sierra Leone becomes an independent republic. Good for you. In 1992, for the first time in its 700 year history, the British House of Commons is presided over by a female speaker. Interesting. I like Burkow. I still like Burkow. Burkow was my favorite. Um, in 1994, South African citizens of all countries are allowed to vote in general elections for the first time. End of apartheid. In 2005, Airbus A380 takes to the skies for the first time. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chance. So let's do this. Let's go into a break. We're going to have our guests coming on with us to have a really good conversation. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with my co-host, Manila Chan. Stay tuned. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines. I am Manila Chan, along with my co-host, Jamarl Thomas. We are going to continue our Twitter takeover conversation this hour with our next guest, who has some ties, I understand, to Elon Musk. And we're going to talk about a different angle, though, about this Twitter takeover by Musk, because Elon Musk is now being courted by several States governors, Texas, Florida, North Dakota, all saying, hey, Elon, once the SEC stuff is all, is all done, why don't you move Twitter out of Silicon Valley over here? Everybody wants Twitter to move. And that's where our next guest comes in. Ari Rastagar is the founder and CEO of Rastagar Properties. And he's a federal attorney and litigator as well, and author of the book, The Gift of Failure. Ari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's talk about this. This is your wheelhouse, real estate, right? We know that the... That, that's exactly what I do. And I was going to tell you, we can just probably end this um, recording pretty pretty abruptly because Twitter's coming to Austin, Texas. You really? <laughs> Holy cow. Everybody is flirting. Everybody is flirting with, with Elon saying, come here, we're going to give you these tax breaks. First, let's start with where they are right now in Silicon Valley in the San Francisco Bay Area. The prices there yeah. are an insane. I mean, the, the most expensive real estate in the country, if not the world, what when when Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley, what did that do to the local residents in that area? What did it do to the homeless population? What did it do in terms of pricing out the average person in San Francisco? Well, you know, questions are the answer, and that's a spectacular question. Um, if we if we go back in time, call it 30 years, 30, 35 years, Silicon Valley was really built on the backbone of this little company you may have heard, heard of called Oracle. <laughs> um, so Larry Ellison, Larry Ellison was really the pioneer um, of companies that we a lot of a lot of the listeners may or may not remember, such as Atari. You know, I'm <laughs> showing my age. We by, remember, you know, by bringing up that name. <laughs> um, but all the, the, the backbone of Silicon Valley 
was built on Oracle and really so much of the backbone, um, you know, the technology of the world is also still built on Oracle's Oracle's platform that a lot of folks, I think, really take for granted. I certainly did for many years until I really understood, you know, what they, you know, what they do. I mean, you can't really get on a subway. You can't, you know, uh, check out for, for gas without using some sort of Oracle software. And Oracle's headquarters is now in Austin, Texas, along with Tesla's headquarters. Okay, and that's where you are. We should note. Wow, it, it, that's my that's my hometown, and obviously, uh, uh, I speak from an enormous level of bias. Although, you know, as a you know as a recovering attorney, I probably still, should still call it straight down the middle. But uh, I'm just going to go out and say it that I'm still pretty biased about our city. So, uh, so the, the, these companies have already made that made that move, and those are the companies that are what created Silicon Valley. And now with, you know, t- Facebook having their second largest office in the world in Austin, you know, with, you know, uh, with their with Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods, you know, for $13.2 billion was the largest acquisition they ever made at a company. And Whole Foods was founded and still headquartered in Austin, Texas, just to name a few of the companies that have, you know, have made made that big plunge. So I think the writing is really on the wall uh, for us in particular. um our prop, we're building a 600,000 square foot industrial plant off of 130 in Austin. And that doesn't mean anything to you other than Elon's Gigafactory, which is now yeah. what I hear the largest Gigafactory in the world, is about two miles away from our site. So we've been watching the development you know, of the, of the Gigafactory. It's been moving at an alarming rate. I give them a tremendous amount of credit uh, for how quickly they kept on that promise of moving the Gigafactory, opening it up. It opened about three weeks ago. And so with Elon already bringing Boring Company to Austin, Tesla being to Austin, you know, Larry Ellison, who has been a board member, longtime advisor of Elon, actually took over as chairman uh, once Elon was having some of those uh, SEC problems. I think when you look at the confluence of events, there's a, a very, very high probability um, that Austin will, in fact, all jokey aside, be be the headquarters. And yes, all these other cities are flirting, um, but I think he's already having an affair with Austin. Wow. <laughs> Let me ask you this. What is he getting out of, I mean, what what are these companies getting? Is this just an issue of tax breaks for the various companies? Is it infrastructure? What is... What's, what's so great yeah, about Austin? What's so great about Texas? What's so great about Austin? So let, let's we'll, we'll answer the we'll answer that systematically. Austin is one of the cities that is one of the last cities in the, in the United States that is true culture. What do I mean by that? If you look at it, New Orleans, New Orleans has has a true identity. Okay, you know when it comes to music, jazz, culture, food, you know it has this rich history. You know the, infu- the you know the French influence and all, all the things that make New Orleans so unique and brings millions and millions of um, of tourists there every year. Those types of intangibles, that type of ethos is more attractive to millennials and to Gen Z than than uh, than other generations in the past. They're looking for areas where they can experience, you know, outdoor activities. Austin has more public parks than any top 10 city in the United States of America. So so th- things of that nature, along with having great food, you know, we have food trucks, you know, that can rival Michelin rated restaurants. 
And so when you take that with the South by Southwest, the music scene, um, and just the overall, you know, culture that even from a sociopolitical standpoint, you have a very strong, you know, left voice within the urban core of Austin and within the outer perimeters, you have a very strong conservative voice. And what that's done is created a beautiful dialogue from both sides and the growth of Austin, the sustainability of Austin really shows, you know, how that bipartisan behavior, not necessarily politically, but even socially, um, has created an environment that makes a lot of people happy. The whole city's built on lakes. You can literally walk out of your, you know, Google's, you know, new uh, 1.2 million square foot office building in downtown within 30 seconds be kayaking in, you know, on Lake Austin. So these things together, you know, create an environment that makes young people, technology, technology companies really want to be there, be there for a lot more reasons than just, well, see, you know, the geographic our- strategic location. All right, here, here's the pushback on that, is that that I, I, would, I would say a lot of people have argued that because Austin has become so gentrified, right? There's that word when we talk about real oh, estate. Oh, I hate that word <laughs> so much. Oh, I don't like so that word. So gentrified. There's, you know, Whole Foods everywhere. Everybody can go to your Jamba Juice. Oh, my God. <laughs> That, that, that Austin has no more culture, that it's not Texas anymore, that, that, that Californians have invaded Austin and that Elon is going to do the same thing if he moves Twitter and he's going to bring those, those you know, liberal-leaning engineers and software developers with him. And, and now you've got thousands of people working there with this, you know, lefty ideology. Well, I'm not even sure if that's true because either he's going to fire them or they're going to quit. But if he, if he adds to that, that flavor of Austin that is, I would argue a lot of people are and are with me on this is that it's the gentrification it's it's the vanilla it's the whole foodsing of the entire country or as George Carlin would say the strip mauling of the entire country god rest his soul george carlin he was a he was a he was a man he was one of his one of a kind that there will never be another one absolutely um, well, look, I, I I understand your your that dissent. Uh, I absolutely appreciate that perspective uh, very much, and respectfully disagree. You know, I I, I see it happening. I see certainly the uh, the, the the city is turning. The city and the state, you know, is moving more towards. I think what a lot of people are calling purple. But Governor Abbott has just done a tremendous job. Of, of being able to attract, you know, attract companies like this, you know, to Austin and throughout Texas. And the reason why I think I think a lot of people, um, you know, sometimes, you know, take for granted that if Texas was a country, it would be the seventh largest country in the world on a GDP basis. So Texas is much bigger and Austin itself is much bigger than uh, simply being a state. It truly acts as a country uh, on its own. So yes, there are tax incentives being given. And we operated a $12 billion surplus, unlike, uh, you know, c- uh, cities or in states in California and New York that are quite literally bankrupt. So, so although, so we have the money to be able to attract those folks. And yes, you know, our joke has always been, you know, I was with Governor Abbott, uh, you know, a few weeks ago down in Beaumont, Texas and Jefferson County. And, you know, I never quite heard it said this way, but it was very poignant. He said, look, you know, Austin's great. You you know, it's only a few minutes away from Texas. (laughs) 
so you know, we've always joked, you know, Austin's, you know, not in Texas and all these things, but I think you'll be, you know, surprised at the diversity that's been brought to Austin, which is really beautiful from, you know, not only from a company standpoint, from the technology, which is now getting all the headline buzz and, you know, that's your, you know, your, your clickbait that you want, but other companies, financial service companies, Vista Equity Partners, one of the largest software private equity companies in the world, you know, is down there, is down there as well. And other, other companies, again, like a Whole Foods, which is a brick and mortar grocery chain, you know, that now obviously is owned by Amazon, but still is true to that to that their brick and mortar core business. You know are also are also in the city, so it's much more diverse than a lot of this liberalification, for lack of a better word, that uh, that is happening. It's still very very balanced. You remember when Elon announced that he was going to move Tesla to Texas? That Gavin Newsom, you know, was running around with his hair on fire, right? Because how was he going to compete? Because you had people like Elon Musk, you had people like Joe Rogan jumping ship, all moving to. Yeah, you're, you're not you're not going to you're not going to compete. That, that's just that's just the fact of the matter. We, we need to realize with 165 people a day moving to Austin and that, that trend been going on, you know, for the last nine years, this is not a boom city. This is not something that is a fluke. It's not something that's going to have a major correction. This is true, sustainable growth led by job creation of some of the biggest companies in the world. So we can expect, you know, Austin to continue to grow sustainably as Manhattan and Silicon Valley did for 30, 40 plus years. You know, Austin, Texas, sorry to break it to everybody, is the new Manhattan. At the top of, of your hello you said, you you said it's over. Elon is coming to Austin now. Do you have intel? Do you have intel on that, Ari? Uh, I do not have direct intel by any stretch of the imagination. Um, this is coming from you know from logical deduction, and, and I, it is truly my opinion. All jokes aside, obviously, right, Tesla's there. Um, so but, obviously. But, but my opinion is based in it is based in pretty pretty compelling empirical data you know, with regards to the Oracle discussion, the Tesla discussion, the Gigafactory discussion. I mean, if his baby, you know, is, is there and now SpaceX is coming, Boring Company is there, and he's the chairman and CEO, how can he logistically run another company of that size, which is clearly his baby, in another state? Like, it just, it just seems like logistically impossible. Yeah, there's a logic to it. I'm curious, what all of those businesses, what is it doing to rents in Austin? They are absolutely skyrocketing with respect. But let me handicap that statement. They are skyrocketing. But in comparison to where rents are in San Francisco and New York, we are still in some instances 100 percent lower than the exact same property. So in the exact same location. So although they're skyrocketing for Austin, if we keep that in perspective amongst its competitor cities, such as Silicon Valley or, you know, Manhattan or Brooklyn, they are still very affordable, respectively, to those other rents. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, because like you said, that's always a bad product, right? The moment that you have all of these businesses and companies, and there's going to have to be people who work at those companies, clearly. But janitors, um, you know, not everybody's going to be making butt. Right. Not everybody's an engineer. Let's talk about that for a second. This, the tertiary markets of Austin are really where people are finding the deepest value. So if you look at this, again, another little company that you might have heard of it called Dell is in 
Round Rock, okay? And Round Rock, you know, certain parts of Round Rock in Georgetown, you know, for the listeners that, you know, don't know that geography as well, it's, it's, it's about 30 to 40 miles due north um, of Austin. You know, houses in that area still, although are, have become much more expensive re- with respect to those cities five, 10 years ago, are still affordable. Or if you drive south into, into Buda or into Kyle, Texas, which is about, you know, 15 miles south of Austin on I-35, we own a 318-acre parcel there that we're building a very large master plan community to build housing that is significantly less expensive than Austin to provide what you would call workforce housing. Um, workforce housing, home purchase opportunities to quell this exact reason uh, that we're talking about of people being priced out of that market. But I, but I must say, as much as I don't like that, you know that that gentrification word. Certainly, there is some gentrification happening in areas. But I would also say that the developers that are in Austin have done a tremendous job. Of, of truly enhancing the community. And I don't mean that to be cute or use some sort of spin doctoring with that language. Truly, the city has. And look, I'm born and raised in Austin also. So I'm not just a transplant that moved into the city. So I, I remember when Austin, I used to live in these little vintage beat up apartments that we're purchasing and renovating. And trust me, I, I have a deep, you know, a heart value associated to the city, not just being there for business purposes. So I speak from a slightly different vantage point. Ari, we know that not in Austin, but another part of Texas, I forget what what town, but Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin is based there. It's it's way out of the Austin area, but but it's there in Texas. But Amazon HQ2 is about to open here, uh, not far from where we're sitting right now in downtown D.C. Correct. And, and by the way, he was talking about coming to Texas and I would argue that the that the single biggest driving factor and the single largest threat to Amazon is legislative on Capitol Hill, bar none. So they not only needed a, a, a West Coast-type presence from a logistical standpoint, but the driving force of them going there was to be able to be, you know, effectuating policy, working with lobbyists, because, because that because that's the real reason. So that was not a reason based upon the reasons that every other company that's moving to Austin is. They're doing it for business reasons. Bezos did, Bezos did that for political reasons. So we cannot compare those two things. No, no, I, I, my point to that was saying that obviously he's moving literally down the road from the Pentagon because he's trying to secure billions of dollars of Pentagon deals. So you you got to you got to be at the table if you're going to be playing poker, you got to yes, be at the you table. Do. Y- y- but but what he's doing, Ari, but what he's doing to and and I you know, maybe call it luck, whatever. I happen to own property there in that area. And when they announced this, I went, "Oh my word." And just yesterday, oh, it drives markets. It dri- it drives markets. And by the way, it's much better to be lucky than be smart. So God bless you. I was you. lucky with that. But the price just, skyrocketed. Just yesterday, the the city Arlington had approved the plans for what they're calling the Helix Tower. And I mean, literally on the announcement of Jeff Bezos coming to HQ two, immediately it was like boom, snap your fingers, and prices started skyrocketing. And people, there the the local people that are the janitors or whatever, because it flipped on a, on a switch, a lot of those people instantly got priced out because the infrastructure wasn't there to help them. Look, look, it's, you know, 
it's very unfortunate and it's a very, very sad thing on a human level what happens in these instances. But the reality of the situation is evolution is going to occur. Things are going to grow. Things are going to change. And we need to come up with a way to, we cannot completely blame this on the federal government for them to figure out, you know, what this whole, what this, you know, displacement issue is. And we cannot completely rely on um, on the private sector to solve this problem. This must be a dialogue that's between, you know, both the private and the public sectors to come up with a solution. But no doubt, you know, many of these cities are not doing, you know, as well of a job as I hope they would uh, to quell that problem, which is clearly a problem that is only going to escalate, certainly in the cities that we're talking about. Um, it's something that I'm very, very, very passionate about with the Rastigar Family Foundation in coming up with, you know, solutions to target Target these particular issues, but definitely more needs to be done um, to support working class Americans. Yeah, I, I know Jeff Bezos was forced to um, have to build X amount of housing for the incoming because they're expecting 25,000 workers. So they have to do X amount for the working lower uh, lower middle class people that live in the area. So there's going to be. Yeah, those are those are his workers. He has a, he has a, he has a duty, in my opinion. Uh, I would take it one step further. He has a fiduciary duty, you know, to the to the to these specific people because those are his employees. And, you know, and, you know, or I mean, look, he's not the CEO anymore. And we keep, you know, pushing on Bezos. We should really say Amazon.com. But, you know, Amazon, I think, has a much more, you know, a much more heightened responsibility, not unlike a Walmart, as an example, you know, who's been, you know, very much in the media recently for, you know, under, you know, paying their employees below the poverty line, as I know you saw that. But I'm saying th these are things that the companies, you know, need to be much, much more cognizant of, you know, if nothing else for the self-interest of protecting the, you know, health and prosperity of their own employees to further the, you know, the agenda of the company itself. But then there's the union busting on Bezos's part or the company's part. But that that's that's a whole nother argument. The whole point of this that's is a, that that's a that's a long time because that's a whole nother discussion yeah. and I'm happy to come on and talk <laughs> about it. But you know, but that but that's a whole nother can of worms. I would love that. The the whole point though is that when Silicon Valley disperses out of Silicon Valley, it shakes markets and changes communities. It is going to be a cataclysmic shift. And this is not something that is new. We have wa been watching, I joked uh, the other day, I forgot what, you know, what, you know, publication where you're on, but I was joking the other day that California and New York are the land of the flea. And Texas is the land of the free. <laughs> land of the flea, like F-L-E-E. -E. Everyone is getting yes, out of like there. Yes, like F-L-E-E, -E, like running for your freaking life. <laughs> yes. Now, what does that, what happens then? Do you think Silicon Valley is dying in slow decay? Absolutely. Oh, but it's already dead on the vine and it just doesn't know that it's dead. Let's put it that way. You think it's that bad or that stark? I don't. I'm. I'm. I just read the. I'm just. I'm just a math guy. I'm a numbers data guy. Just, just read numbers. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not. This is not my. This is not like my own. Like you know, esoteric opinion. I, I. I just read the numbers. And when it's literally, you know, Austin is an example. You know, or Raleigh, North Carolina, or Nashville, Tennessee, or Phoenix, Arizona, or hockey sticks up. And you look at San Francisco and it's a hockey stick down, doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that it's deteriorating. And we both know either you're growing or you're dying. There's no there's no stat. There's no nothing static about the global market. Now, you came from California. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. And I remember when Kim Iverson used to talk about California, she was talking about this flight also. 
like how that basically California is not the greatest place to be um, right now. And that a lot of people have basically been leaving. Let's Texas. be nice to California in, in one instance. I'm actually in Beverly Hills right now on business. And, and I will say for you. Uh, oh, yeah, but I, oh, I'm up at five in the morning. Anybody that knows me knows that I'm not very good at sleeping. But um, life is life is too good. When life is this good, what's what's the point of sleeping that much? Well, no, I feel you. I feel you. I was going to ask Manila, like, what was the reason? And I can both of you, actually. What was the reason or what is the reason that all of these people are leaving California like that? Is it the homelessness? It's called the Hollywood dream. It's called the Hollywood dream, my friend. There is an, there is a, a, there is a Hollywood mystique and a obsession with celebrity Mm -hmm. that plagues the world. And you cannot underestimate that power, that emotional draw that brings people to this area, West Hollywood Bingo. and Beverly Hills, just as an example, will is is almost recession. I don't say recession proof because everything is risk, but recession resilient at a level that I would argue two other markets. I, I don't know two other markets that are more resilient because people want to be stars. They want to feel like celebrities. They want to see celebrities. And California is not losing that mystique. Right, and and I'll tell you having been born and raised in Los Angeles. And, it, you know, most locals like me don't bat an eye. You might be like, oh, that's so-and-so sitting at the next table or whatever. You know, it's kind of like, oh, that's cool. No, we're not fangirling or fanboying them because that. this is, yeah. right, you're, you're from there and you're multi-generational. We're it's, all enamored by it. There's nothing well, wrong with it. And by the no, way- No, no, that's fine. Yes. Mo- mo- by the way, I think mo- when people said before- you know, when we're talking about this retail apocalypse, okay, and people were talking about movie theaters, and I read a bunch of articles about people saying movie theaters are dying. Eh, wrong. Really? Not, not dying. Why? And the reason why is going to the movies is an American pastime. It's it is in our DNA to go to go to movies. It is not going away. And that parlays into the mystique of California, of Hollywood, of these areas. And that even extends to other parts of California that aren't within Los Angeles proper. And it is hard to overcome that. And quite frankly, with the TikTok era and all these other people wanting to be instant celebrities, that thing is just not going all away. Right. In my let, let me let me ask you this. Being an expert in real estate, the people that are fleeing California, I mean, my my family, we're multi-generational Californian, right? So they're still there. There's no fleeing. Like, that's where they, you know, once they immigrated to the U.S., that's where they stayed. That's that's their home. Are the people that are leaving California, are those the people that came from, like, let's say, Kansas or Idaho, trying to become models and actors, coming to L.A., coming to California with the California dream? They're the ones that are fleeing? That's a great question. The answer is no. These are professionals. A lot of them that are in, I would say, we're watching a huge demographic shift. I would say on average age between 48 to 52 years old of people that are leaving for for jobs or folks that have bought, purchased their homes, call it 20 years ago in the early mid-20s, their first starter home that's worth three or $4 million. I'm just making up numbers. And they can get the same type of house with lower cost of living for a third of the price. And they're using the delta of that money to support a better lifestyle. Really interesting. I mean, especially if it's cheaper there. And like you even made the point yourself, like sometimes rent is like 100% cheaper 
It's a fraction of the price. A $3 million house here in one of the suburbs in Los Angeles is $800,000 yes. in Austin. So if you have, if you can keep two, $2 million of excess money and put that into the markets with a savvy financial advisor or whatever your strategy is, that's an entire retirement. That is significant. I mean, I know how it is in D.C. versus, let's say, Richmond, for example. Richmond is far cheaper in regards to housing and everything else. Oh, and, oh my God. You can't compare it. I mean, it's, it, the, the median housing price in Richmond is, is half of what it is in D.C. Absolutely. It, it's like a single bedroom apartment here. Wow. It's like a house in D.C. I mean, in Richmond. It's insane. On a median basis. Yes. On an average and median basis, half. We paid, I think it was, let's say like $1,300 for rent. It was a three bedroom house in Richmond. Moving here, you might get a one bedroom apartment for that. Wow. It is insanely different. If, 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 if you're lucky, and you'll probably have uh, a, a, a guest or two crawling around the ground <laughs> and, and, a couple, right. and, a couple, and a couple friendly leaks that you can use as a shower if your bathroom's broken. Pretty much, yeah. That's, that, that sounds, so you know the D.C. real estate area, <laughs> clearly. Um, hey, thank you. I, I totally appreciate this conversation, man. This has been fun. I hope you will come back because we, we, we... Yeah, you, let, let's We do, need a let's numbers guy. You, you guys are... You all, y'all are smart. I, I, I love, I love the smart questions. And if uh, this has been a definitely been a fun, a fun dialogue, and I hope those listen, we didn't bore too much. No, you're perfectly fine. Ari Rastengar, he is founder and CEO of Rastengar Capital, a company founded to provide access, transparency, and services to investors interested in U.S. commercial real estate. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan. I was going to say, I was, I was, yeah, I was going to go to the full name, and then I was like, well, wait a minute, do you need to go? To- it's too much thought in one moment. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment, we'll be taking your calls. 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Apparently, somebody is, wants to take the piss out of me for Gonzo Lira. More than welcome to do so. Uh, but we'll back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. And we have David from South Carolina. David, what's going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? Hey, I'm well. How about y'all? So far, so good. What's the topic for today? Your last guest, how much land do you think he owns? Oh, I have no idea. I don't know. I heard Texas has a lot of land. Because, you know, he <laughs> said before, and like, apparently when he started, he was living in the properties and then, I guess, building the properties. Well, I mean, I guess if he's yeah. somewhere close to mine and Jamarl's age, then, you know, maybe back in the 70s and 80s, like, there, it wasn't as developed. So yeah. there was probably a lot available and his family probably, you know, Saw the future. Talking about caring about the working class, middle class people, that was a load of bull. And I wish that y'all would have pushed back on that more because, you know, we we know what happens. And especially in Texas, property values, the more they go up, their property taxes, you know, property taxes, they don't have uh, state income tax. Property tax is really high in Texas. And it's just going to push more people out of their homes. And I I wish I would. Here's the thing, though. Unfortunately, like you said, that's everywhere. I was having this let them eat cake moment, seriously. No, 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 no. I mean, if you think about it, anywhere you go is that way. I mean, for example, New York, 
San Francisco, California. All of these states are something like that. I mean, even countries like Portugal, for example, where you have this kind of cheap real estate. Well, the moment that you have like Airbnb and all of these other things, the rent immediately goes up. I mean, the reason we brought the question up in the first place, or I brought it up was, hey, how are you guys dealing with this? Your rent is going to skyrocket. But I accept this point. If you're comparing it to, let's say, California or something where the people are basically leaving from, the rent is going to be dramatically less. My um, ex's mom used to live in California. Like, like what? And eventually it'll go up higher like they did. And it'll go up just even higher and higher and higher. It's going to get insane. Yeah. And, and look, to this point, he's right. There needs to be some kind of solution for it. Silicon Valley, where people are priced out. I mean, the homeless, you think there is not a homeless problem in Texas and there's going to be an even worse one. Oh, yeah. It's going to get bad. It is going to, definitely going to get bad. Really bad. David, thank you. By the way, what is the rents like in same, um, South Carolina? They're cheaper in South Carolina, right? Yeah, it's cheaper. But I live in a, I live in a big city, so uh, it's higher than the average. I live in, um, yeah, I live in Charleston, so. Are you back from, are you back from Paris? No, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm going next week. Oh, you're going. You haven't gone yet. Yeah, I'm going next week, yeah. Be careful and have a lot of fun, man. Paris is great. Oh, I will be careful. All righty. Let's go to Tarif from New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? Thanks for taking my call. Uh, first, I'd like to say free Drew and Assange. Um, I have three comments. First comment is dealing with the, um, in Western Ukraine, Transnistria, which is Russian held. Moldova. It's just as um, a part of Moldova that split off. They have rumors that um, Zelensky want to invade that area to widen the wall. My second comment is dealing with um, the gas price, because Bulgaria and Hungary don't want to. Um, I mean, Poland don't want to pay for the gas, right? In rules. It sent the gas up by 25% where everybody else got to pay the difference now. Isn't that something? Like, think about that for a moment. Like, like, pause there for a moment. Like, if you think about the amount of money that these guys have to pay for gas under normal circumstances in general, meaning Europe, and then you have certain countries that basically decided to go for more expensive gas because they didn't want to use Russian gas. Okay, fair enough. But in this very specific case, they've driven the price up. So the other European countries, well, but no, they have contracts, right? Those contracts are already in place. So I don't necessarily know if the price, they have to pay, basically pay that price immediately as long as they have a contract for it. But if those contracts end, at that point, they're going to have to and pay the difference. As of right now, the, the Russians are, are, are not breaking any, contracts, any exactly. contracts on their end. Right. So it's the other people. So it's like, well, all right, then you don't get service. Yeah. Simple as that. Um, but there are existing contracts and the people that do, I mean, the, the smaller countries that we don't really know about or or... or hell, even little municipalities um, that are making deals with Russia, honoring their contracts, paying in rubles. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, it's just that, that simple. Very straightforward. Go ahead, Tarif. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. My last comment is dealing with Trump. Trump was reported as saying that he was going to come back on Twitter, which is a stupid decision. To- <laughs> I don't know. Where did you hear that, though? I didn't, I didn't hear that he actually said, I'm oh. coming back on Twitter. Oh, see, I heard him say he wasn't going to come back on Twitter. Right. I didn't hear. I didn't hear that he said I. I am coming. No, no, that's what I'm saying. He, he said he wasn't coming back on Twitter, which means that's that's idiotic because he got 84 million followers and free as that's free advertising. I mean, um, oh, for Truth Social. Because you got you got Odyssey, you got Rumble was on Twitter. You have other platforms on Twitter. The the my pillow guy apparently got his Twitter back last night. Did he? And, but apparently, 
it, he implied as if you have to start from scratch. Like once they kill your account, you, yeah, you have to get your followers back from scratch. So I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of what he implied or what I inferred from his tweet. But if Donald Trump comes back, are all 80 million going back? Well, we'll see. I mean, he, I mean, to be honest with you, you have people around the planet that do like him. We got people that, that hate him. So he'd get both for Beth, both of Beth worlds. And if he do come back, a person like me would jump on his Twitter trade and get as much um, publicity I need for my case. Let me ask you this. Do you think he's being straightforward um, that he's not coming back? I get the feeling he's coming back. I don't buy it. I don't believe him. Well, Truth Soldier, my, my, my account on Truth Soldier have yet to be confirmed. So I don't know what's going on with that. He need to come back to help out his other platform because Twitter got the share market. It's number one. I mean, dealing with, you know, around the world with hundreds of millions of people, maybe over a billion people on there sharing different tweets and conversations with each other, right? And, and I must say, he's about freedom of speech, but, you know, you got the EU and you got China got different stories for that, you know, and also Russia. So you got to abide by their laws. But here in the Western Hemisphere, the United States, the United States, well, at least we have the Constitution. And also if the, the uh, DNC take them to court, the Biden take them to court behind 230 or whatever, then, you know, England m- might win. Maybe he might win or maybe he might lose. We'll see. You know, like the man said, he got six months before he takes over. Trump needs to come back on. He needs to stop, you know, walking around here like, you know, like true social is all that is not because I'm having trouble with it still. The platform's still having problems. He needs to get on um, Twitter so we can jump on his tweets, th- threads, and game. <laughs> Tarif, I think he'll be back. We'll see. I think he'll be back, though. I think that one you're going to get that you want on this one. Um, but let's, let's go to the next one. Thank you, Tarif. New Orleans. Um, Daniel, San Antonio, Texas. Daniel, what's going on, my man? I like to, I, I heard you guys com- making a conversation about Austin. The last time I really was able to get to Austin, mm-hmm. and Texas State University provided public transit between the two cities. And back then I started noticing the motto, the keep Austin weird motto, that culture there started disappearing. And I was recently there just for a few hours about a year ago. And it's just completely gone. Oh, the it, the originality that was there prior. Yeah. I tried looking for this. Here's a good example. I tried looking for this toy store, this, because Keep Austin Weird, the motto was created to support your local oh. like book people, which if you're ever going to Austin, it's right across the street from the uh, Whole Foods HQ. Awesome bookstore. Awesome bookstore. But there was also this toy store um, on Guadalupe. I can't think of the name anymore, but it is gone. And a lot of these small businesses are gone that made Austin Austin. And we're having the same effect in San Antonio, but that effect is not there. And as for the property taxes, oh my gosh. Um, the one, the, One of the people... Uh, who were against Airbnb rules in San Antonio were the people using Airbnb to pay their property taxes. The property taxes are very high then in Texas. Everything. It, it really is, especially if you're in any city. Even a place like Corpus Christi, which is a tourist town just there on the coastline, 
I'm having friends who live in Corpus Christi saying, I don't think I'll be able to afford this. Luckily, you're able to go and fight against it, but a lot of times they're they're up the river. Um, I don't own. I I'm, I'm lucky enough to where I live with my girlfriend who's on public assistance. But even then, it was it was a five year waiting list just to get into that apartment. So it sounds like they're. Perhaps Governor Abbott needs to look into investing in more of the infrastructure to support the the regular folks in the area because when big tech comes into your town, it does what it it's gonna do what it did to Silicon Valley and the locals in Northern California that were mostly black and brown people who got displaced. And then they really had no place to go. And a lot of them never rebounded, and a lot of them did end up on the street. The ones that could go somewhere. Um, either went further east in California or left the state altogether. Um, so that's, you know, unfortunate to hear that Greg Abbott hasn't really thought that far out other than flirting with Elon Musk to say, come here. But you need the infrastructure to support the the people who aren't the engineers, who aren't as rich as Elon Musk. That's right. The baristas. <laughs> Those engineers going to get their barista um, their coffee somewhere. Shop owners. And, and, and I like that. I like that too. I like like when you go to a town, it's, the town has its own flair, has its own flavor. It's distinct. I yeah. don't want, like George Carlin said, this, I mean, to, to George Carlin, it was d- this dystopian future of everything was a strip mall, right? Everything was like a Forever 21 and a Starbucks and, you know, you name everything that you see everywhere across this country, a Cracker Barrel everywhere. I don't want to eat there. I do. So let's do this. There was a comment, apparently. And I'll just I'll read it out. And the person could have called in. He was like, he didn't think they were to let him call in. He says, I would like to call in and ask Jamal why he was doubting Lyra without any evidence, like some blank lib, but don't think producers would let him on air. Dude, producers would let you on air. I promise you. You could, you know, it's Fault Lines. It's a call in show. The entire point anything. of it's Fault Lines. Yeah. Oh, he is on. Excellent. So, look, my reason for doubting Lyra is because I got to be honest, I doubt most people on most things. When people tell me stuff, oftentimes I rarely believe what they're saying. It just kind of sits in this kind of milieu. And under normal circumstances, especially if there are incentives that are involved into the process that I think could lend itself towards a person being deceptive, then yeah, of course I'm going to consider it. Do I have any evidence one way or the other? That's the rub. I don't have any evidence one way or the other. And so you're kind of stuck in this thing of, okay, well, you either trust them or you don't. I'm in the middle somewhere. I mean, I just don't have anything um, to go by. You'd either just have to accept it. There are a few things that we know are true. We know that he's in the territory. We know that he's in a hostile area. We know that the Daily Beast, um, at the very least, was making contacts to the Ukrainian government. That's all we know. So, I mean, I don't necessarily think he's lying. Most of the people here basically went with the notion that, okay, we think he's telling the truth, or at the very least, we think something happened. I don't know. I'm usually in this perpetual sense of not knowing um, one way or the other. And so, when I have questions, I've raised them. Doesn't necessarily matter who the person is. It's not, oh, good. Oh, oh, shakedown. He's on. So shakedown. What? What do you accept? My answer for that, or you think? No, you should have just immediately accepted the guy is telling the truth. Yeah, I can. Oh, there you are. So no, I was going to ask the question. I, I raised the question the first time around. I was saying I don't know if you heard my answer, but what's your? Go ahead. Go ahead. Action take. Let's get into it. We have about. Uh, we have about a minute. We have about a minute. But go ahead, make your point. I, I made my reason or gave my rationale for why I have questions about stuff like that and questions about all everything. 
But what is your take on that, on my answer? Uh, your answer is, it's fine with me. I, I understand, but it just... But great, that's all. I just well, should I immediately just jump to the conclusion that he's being entirely and completely honest? I have to take someone at their word when they've shown me in the past that they've been an honest actor and the reporting on Ukraine has been amazing. I don't agree with that person actually with everything politically, but I can accept that. Their presence on social media is just amazing. Shake down, we're gonna have to close it. I totally accept that. Fair enough. I want to thank all of you guys. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank our producer. I want to thank all of you, the Fault Lines audience. We will see you guys tomorrow morning, bright and early. Have a good one. Have a good day, guys. Fault Lines.